When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. Poppy is off today. Don and I are here in New York. Let's get started with the five things that you need to know today. St. Patrick's Day, Friday, March 17th. New overnight, China's President Xi Jinping is headed to Russia next week for the first time since Russia invaded Ukraine. China has tried to portray itself as a neutral party in the war, but the West has been very skeptical and is still concerned that China is considering providing Russia with weapons. And a CNN exclusive. At least two dozen Mar-a-Lago staffers, ranging from restaurant service to members of Donald Trump's inner circle, have been subpoenaed to testify before a federal grand jury. Multiple sources tell CNN that this is in connection to the special counsel investigation to the former president's handling of classified documents. Also, banks rescuing another bank? First Republic Bank is set to receive a $30 billion lifeline. Money is coming from a group of major banks, including J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo. And a dramatic last-second shot, a tiger's tail turning into a Cinderella story and another full day of madness ahead. We are going to break down all of your busted brackets from the NCAA tournament. Also this morning, new songs that are sure to move up the charts quickly and swiftly. We have Taylor's new tracks that were released while you were sleeping. CNN This Morning starts right now. All of the girls <laughs> <laughs> you did say swiftly. That was on purpose, right? Did you get up last night to listen to these? I did. That's why I'm so <laughs> sleepy. I got up as soon as they dropped. And you don't even call them albums anymore. In my day, if I could murder. You had albums. You had albums. We had LPs, and we'd open them. We'd look at the liner notes, and everybody went to the record store. I'm going to see happen. her on Friday. I hear. Vegas. I'm really excited. Are you ex On Friday? Yeah, next Friday. Next Friday. Yeah, yeah. She's going to be so good. Are you flying or driving? Uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> you're I'm going to take you, your plane. You're right? going to Vegas, yes. You're going to Vegas, but she doesn't do what do you call it when you um, residency? Like a residency. Where she doesn't there. do residency. No, this is a full blown tour. It's like all across the country. Yeah. So. You excited? I'll let you know. I'll get you a T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to begin this morning though with that high stakes meeting that we have just learned about. Chinese President Xi Jinping is set to visit Russian President Vladimir Putin next Monday. This is going to be Xi's first trip to Russia since Putin invaded Ukraine over a year ago. Beijing has attempted to present itself as a neutral party, maybe even a peace broker in all of this and this war. But they've also been providing economic and diplomatic support to the Kremlin. And CNN reported last month that the U.S. does have intelligence suggesting China is considering providing Russia with weapons for use in Ukraine. We are also getting new details this morning on that dramatic video you saw yesterday, the U.S. drone that was forced down by a Russian fighter jet over the Black Sea. Both the U.S. and Moscow are now on the hunt for the wreckage. Russia got there first. The U.S. does believe Russia has now recovered some of that debris. We have team coverage here. CNN's Ivan Watson is live in Kharkiv, Ukraine. But first, let's go to CNN's Natasha Bertrand, who is at the Pentagon. Natasha, you know, this meeting potentially has incredibly big implications. What are you hearing so far from U.S. officials about this? 
Yeah, Caitlin, well, U.S. officials will be watching this, obviously, very, very closely. They have been extremely concerned about the growing partnership between Russia and China over the last year, this growing military partnership where we have seen uh, China uh, pr provide uh, technology as well as equipment to the Russians, but have not yet provided that lethal aid. That is the big piece of this that U.S. officials are watching for, that, th that weaponry that China is apparently considering providing, but has not yet uh, taken that step. Now, the the Russia and China, Russians, and, Russians and Chinese did declare a no-limits partnership at the beginning of the war, and their partnership really has only grown ever since. Uh, Xi and Putin, uh, the, the president of Russia, they have spoken many, many times since the war began, but Xi Jinping has actually not, not yet spoken to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, which is something that the U.S. Uh, has been urging him to do. The Chinese also introduced a 12-point so-called peace plan for the war in Ukraine that U.S. officials are extremely skeptical of. They believe that the Chinese have already picked their side uh, in this conflict, Caitlin. Uh, Natasha, I'm going to ask you a question because it's, it's interesting how quickly things move on. Yesterday, the big breaking news was, of course, that uh, drone interception and the drone going down into the Black Sea. I want to get the latest on that. What are the concerns now of Russia getting its hands on these drone fragments, at least? I know it's four to 5,000 feet below surface, but still fragments could float up. What's the concern here? Well, so far, what we're hearing at the Pentagon is that they are not overly concerned about what Russia has been able to pick up so far because they have been pretty small pieces of things like plexiglass, things that are not uh, very valuable. And of course, the U.S. also took steps to wipe the software on that drone, making it very difficult, if not impossible, for the Russians to glean anything really of intelligence value. But look, we are learning that the U.S., amid all of this drama, is assessing its drone operations over the Black Sea because they don't want this to happen again. And so they are looking at ways to maybe deconflict with the Russians further, and they're weighing the costs and benefits of conducting these drone missions over the Black Sea and the intelligence value of really of doing it versus the risks of potential escalation with Russia. Don, Caitlin. Yeah, big questions still remain. Natasha Bertrand at the Pentagon, thank you. I want to get now to Ivan Watson. We mentioned his team coverage. Ivan is on the ground live for us in Kharkiv, Ukraine. Good morning to you, Ivan. What is the reaction among Ukrainian officials to the upcoming meeting between China and Russia's presidents? I think they're watching nervously, Don. I'm, the Ukrainians and their allies, they know that while China says it's neutral, that Xi Jinping is much closer to Vladimir Putin, uh, has never condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine, hasn't said a word about the fact that Russia occupied Ukrainian territory and then formally annexed it to Russia. Uh, but the Ukrainians would much rather have uh, China kind of pretending to be neutral than openly arming its much bigger and arguably more powerful neighbor. Uh, yesterday, the Ukrainian foreign minister had a rare phone conversation with his Chinese counterpart. He says that he used that opportunity to repeat uh, the principle of uh, territorial integrity. That's something that China talks about a lot, sovereignty and territorial integrity, but it has not said a word of that publicly when it comes to Ukraine's uh, very battered territorial integrity, Don. And the impact of these fighter jets coming from Poland, how much of an impact will that have on the ground in Ukraine, Ivan? Look, uh, most of this uh, war right now is being fought by infantry and artillery, but it's symbolic and every piece of equipment that Ukraine can get will help. Take a listen to the Polish president making this announcement yesterday. 
w pierwszej kolejności dosłownie. Literally within the next few days we will hand over as far as I can remember four aircraft to Ukraine in full working order. The rest are being prepared, serviced and will be successfully handed over. Now, the uh, Prime Minister of Slovakia, Slovakia, just announced that his small Eastern European country will also be supplying, in his words, about 13 of these MiG-29s to Ukraine as well. Keep in mind, these planes are probably all more than 20 years old. They're designs from the Soviet Union from the 1970s and 80s. Some of them are probably not in working order, but they're also symbolic. They're signs that Europe is still supporting Ukraine. And this is a war of attrition. Whoever can last the longest will arguably win this terrible war. Back to you. Right. Ivan Watson, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Later in the show, we need to tell you that we're going to discuss this and more with the Pentagon Press Secretary, Brigadier General Patrick Ryder. That's coming up. And now we want to move to a major development and a CNN exclusive in the special counsel's investigation of former President Trump. Sources tell CNN that at least two dozen people who work at Mar-a-Lago have been subpoenaed to testify about Trump, Trump's handling of top secret and classified documents, which were found stashed away at his Florida resort. That includes everybody from restaurant servers and a housekeeper <laughs> to members of Trump's inner circle. And just yesterday, our cameras captured one of Trump's top communication staffers at the courthouse in D.C., where she appeared before the grand jury. Our, our senior, senior, senior legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed, is here to join us. Sorry, I was coughing a bit. A little, yeah. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> Thank you, Don, for You're rescuing welcome. me there. Good morning. Okay, Hi. so this reporting is really fascinating on all of the people who were subpoenaed. I want to get to Marco in a minute. But this subpoena it went to housekeepers, yeah. restaurant servers. Why are they of interest to investigators here? Groundskeepers. Well, of course, this is the first time we've ever had a former president who lives effectively at a resort. So they've fired off over two dozen subpoenas to everyone that may have seen something or heard something about classified documents or boxes moving around the resort. But I mean, he's casting a really wide net, little fish, big fish, anyone he can get. And they say they just want to talk to anyone who may have seen something. They want to get all the evidence possible. But people close to the former president's legal team argue like, look, this is a little excessive. They're trying to make it look like they've talked to hundreds of people. But one of my questions was, look, if you're a server at a resort in Florida, how do you afford legal counsel? in a federal investigation. Right. And we've learned that Trump entities are helping some of these people with their legal bills. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's interesting because um, I think the common wisdom is that they're doing it because the defense, or at least the prosecution, they don't want any surprises when it comes to this. So they want to interview everyone so that someone doesn't step in at the last minute and say, oh, wait, I was just a moving guy, or I happened to be you know, a server that day, and I just moved the documents, and therefore... There's exactly. nothing to do with the former Leave president. Leave no stone unturned. Yeah. And that is really critical. I mean, there's even one guy who was caught on security footage helping another aide. We know Walt Nada has talked to investigators. They want to talk to him, too, because he was caught on security camera helping him move boxes. They want to know why. Who told you to do that? Where they were going? And one of his communications aides, who, who worked in the White House, still works for him now, was actually seen going for the grand jury. I think this shows, I mean, clearly they're still bringing people in on a daily basis, people who speak to the former president on a daily basis. Exactly. Because one of our questions after learning that servers and groundskeepers and housekeepers were being subpoenaed, we're like, all right, who's left? 
Margot, and you know, we remember we were, when we were at the White House, she was in the press office in those final months. We dealt with her every day, and she's one of a small group of people who followed him down to Florida, still works for him. So in terms of proximity to the former president, a really key witness. But at this point, it's unclear exactly what information they were able to get from her. Yeah. Good to see you on yet another investigation. Every day. Every single day. All right, Paula Reed, thank you. Thank you. This morning, a lifeline from some of America's largest banks. First Republic Bank set to receive a $30 billion infusion of cash as it faces a crisis of confidence from both investors and customers. These 11 banks pitching in to stabilize a California bank that is teetering on the edge the same day that Secretary, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told the Senate Finance Committee this. Listen. I can reassure the members of the committee that our banking system is sound and that Americans can feel confident that their deposits will be there when they need them. This week's actions demonstrate our resolute commitment to ensure that our financial system remains strong and that depositors' savings remain safe. Well, more now. I want to bring in someone who has been extremely busy this week. This is her beat, of course. She said she was too busy to even fill out a bracket. I know. Uh, I wish I could think about basketball, but I've been only thinking about banks. But there should be a bank bracket, seriously, with right. all of this, right? right. So this like I have J.P. Morgan for the Final Four. When <laughs> 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 taking the Final Four. Well, speaking of, is this enough to stabilize? Yeah, look, so this is all of these banks bailing out another bank. You know, financial stability is a public good, and banks know that financial stability is good for their business too, right? So they're stepping in to make First Republic whole here, putting $30 billion in there to cover deposits. First Republic is one of these banks that had, I think, 68% of its deposits were not insured, right? So you had all these people saying, wait a minute, if I'm not protected by the FDIC, I'm going to start moving some of my money out. And that made First Republic very weak. There was not a buyer for this bank. So all of these other banks coming together to put money in there to say, we, um, we're going to bail out First Republic, not the taxpayer, other banks. But that's, uh, maybe I'm going on, on something that's a whole other thing. 68% not insured. How does that happen? Maybe that's too far it's field. Because, well, no, it's because, you know, we're only insured up to $250,000. They're over. So a lot of people were, had all of their money in there, yeah. wealthy individuals, some businesses had their entire account in one bank, so only, only insured up to $250,000. And so you've seen the pressure in these regional banks is because people are looking and saying, wait a minute, I'm going to put some money in J.P. Morgan Chase. I'm going to put some money in Citigroup. I'm going to only have $250,000 in this, in this particular bank account. So for most people, you're ins- I mean, most people don't have more than $250,000 in one bank, right? So you're insured. But for, some, for others, there are these uninsured limits. Most people don't. But the concern here, and I was talking to Patrick McHenry, who is yeah. the financial services chair yesterday, the concern is that this hurts mid-sized banks because people who do have money are going to these bigger banks because they feel like they have more stability or whatnot. So this solves the immediate issue, but what does it mean overall for these mid-sized and smaller banks? And you want community banks. You want vibrant, healthy community banks. And I think that's one of the important parts of this First Republic event is like the big banks know that too. They know that it's good to have different sized banks um, all around. Uh, You want to have community banks and you want them to be healthy. And that was one of the reasons why Um, Some of that rollback of Dodd-Frank in 2018, you know, you had Democrats and Republicans who wanted to make sure that there weren't really stringent, such stringent rules on these small and mid-sized banks that they couldn't afford stress tests and the like. I think the jury's still out about whether rolling those regulations back allowed this to happen. It might be one of the factors. But for the most part, this is a big interest rate story. Interest rates went up so far so fast. 
it really it really caught out a lot of these smaller banks. Janet Yellen getting questions about that oh, yesterday. Yeah. yeah. The, the yeah, interest rate hikes. And we'll the, the and we'll driver? be and we'll be watching these regional banks this morning. They're a little weak this morning. I think look, I think regulators have drawn a line under the crisis for now, but it's going to be bumpy in the in the in the weeks and months ahead and in the banking down, sector. Yeah, they're down this morning right now. So yeah. we'll watch and see. It's volatile. Thanks, Christine. Nice to see you guys. You as well. The Biden administration telling TikTok's parent company, sell the app or face a possible ban here in the United States. Now the CEO of TikTok is pushing back his message to Washington and the options on the table. We'll discuss. More CNN this morning to come after the break. The Biden administration has drawn a line in the sand for the incredibly popular social media app, TikTok, over national security concerns, now telling its Chinese-owned parent company that it either needs to sell its stake in the U.S. version of the app or it's going to be banned. The TikTok CEO is pushing back on that idea, telling The Wall Street Journal that the sale of the company will not solve the security concerns that the U.S. has. Joining us now for perspective on this is Sarah Fisher, CNN's media analyst and media reporter at Axios. Sarah, I know the CEO of TikTok is going to be on Capitol Hill next week, and he's basically making the argument that what they're trying to do is not going to to ease their concerns. Is he right, or is that just, you know, a pretty obvious message coming from the company's CEO? It's a pretty obvious message, Caitlin. Clearly, our government does not agree with that because if they did, they wouldn't be forcing the Chinese owners to sell the stake in order for the app to remain here. What TikTok has been doing is spending billions of dollars to move the data of U.S. users to servers here in the U.S. and Europe. It's also working with Oracle to give that company oversight of its content moderation algorithms. But the concern from Washington is that any Chinese company, by law, has to give data over to China. And so even though TikTok's says they're doing all of these things to mitigate concern. If they still have Chinese shareholders, of which there are a lot, they're going to be beholden to this law, and that poses a national security risk. But what would, Sarah, what would exactly a change in ownership, what would that do? What would that fix here? Would that make any difference? Well, that's where it gets a little bit complicated. One, what does a change in ownership mean? Does it mean that every single shareholder in the company right now needs to outright sell the company fully to a U.S. firm? Does it mean that the folks who have Chinese citizenship who would be beholden to a law like that would have to sell their stakes? So that would be most of the employees and the founders. It's about 40 percent. But what would it do, Don? It would ensure that a U.S. company has oversight, essentially, of how this app works, meaning it would have oversight over the data privacy of U.S. users and how the content algorithms work. In the past, we've seen two examples where this could actually be pretty helpful. In 2019, there was a Guardian report that TikTok in the U.S. was filled filtering out algorithms that were spreading negative uh, messages around the CCP, algorithms, hashtags, messages, et cetera. And then also, more recently, there was a report that the uh, ByteDance employees were using the app to spy on U.S. journalists. So those are two concrete examples, both of which, by the way, TikTok executives have admitted have occurred and you know, are true, where if there was ownership by a U.S. company, that would be less likely to happen. So TikTok has, has this pro- proposed compromise, which they are calling Project Texas, Basically, it would allow Oracle, which is an American company, to store the data of American users on the app. And it says it would safeguard against influence from China, arguing, you know, the data behind the idea behind it is that it won't matter what the Chinese law says or any law because they're taking U.S. user data and putting it out of their reach. But are they really? I I think people would be very skeptical of that claim. 
So apparently they have about a year to do all of the data migration and to move it over. But this goes back to the ownership question, right, Caitlin? If the company that actually outright owns it is American, then of course you can ensure their word when they say they've migrated all the data over. If it's not an American company, there's a concern that they're not telling the truth. Another big issue here is the algorithm. You know, Chinese government has tried so hard to protect the IP of Chinese tech companies. Part of the concern that they have with ByteDance selling a stake or selling the app would be, would they be able to sell the algorithm? And as it looks right now, it does not appear like China would let that happen, let alone even let a whole outright sale happen. Uh, final question, Sarah. Why aren't you here in New York with us instead <laughs> of in D.C.? We like having you on the set. Next week. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Soon. that's a perfect answer. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Have a good weekend. Appreciate it. Thank you. Straight ahead here on CNN This Morning. Pete Buttigieg not only can't do his job, but he can't take a joke. Uh, former Vice President Mike Pence defending his joke about Pete Buttigieg's paternity leave, how the Buttigieg's are responding. Plus, we are also hearing from the family of that 14-year-old kid who was killed on an Orlando amusement park ride, the lawsuit that they just settled a year after the fall. This was my son's last breath, last place on earth. I mean, last thought, last everything. He took his last everything on that ride. This is really the worst nightmare for anyone. The family of a 14-year-old boy has reached a settlement after he fell to his death at a Florida amusement park nearly a year ago. Tyree Sampson was on spring break when he slipped out of his seat on the 400-foot-tall Orlando freefall ride at Icon Park. CNN's Carlos Suarez joins us now live from Orlando. Carlos, horrible. What is the latest with this? Well, uh, Samson's mother tells me uh, that she promised her son that she would see this ride taken down. And as you can see behind me, parts of that ride now rest on the street outside of that amusement park where that teenager died. And as you can imagine, for the family, having come out here earlier this week to remember him, this was an incredibly difficult trip. Nakia Dodd making a first and possibly last visit to the amusement ride that killed her 14-year-old son, Tyree Sampson. Workers began taking apart the freefall drop tower ride in Orlando as she watched. This place was my son's last breath, last place on earth. I mean, last thought, last everything. He took his last everything on that ride. Samson was on a spring break trip last March when he fell from what the rides operators say was the world's tallest drop tower ride at Icon Park. Nearly a year later, Dodd said the grief is still overwhelming. I still talk to him. He's there every day. So he's there with me spiritually, just not physically so. An investigation by Florida's Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services determined Samson slipped out of his seat because he wasn't properly secured. The report found operators made manual adjustments to two seats on the ride in order to accommodate, quote, larger people. According to investigators, the photo on the left shows the gap in Tyree's seat was nearly 7.2 inches. The photo on the right shows the average gap for the unadjusted seats was 3.3 inches. The report found the, quote, misadjustments of the seats sensor allowed for safety lights to turn on, which allowed the ride to start, even though it wasn't safe. 
Samson weighed 383 pounds, according to the family, and was 100 pounds above the maximum weight for the ride, according to the ride's manual. They had nothing for weight on a ride that that was the most important thing because of the velocity of the ride. And they had nothing to warn Tyree. If he was on other rides, why not this one? As an adult or the ride attendant, you should have made that call. His feelings would have been hurt, but he will still be here with me today. The family's attorney said they've reached a settlement in its wrongful death lawsuit with the amusement park and the operators of the ride. A lawsuit against the manufacturer of the ride and the company that designed the seat is pending. And Florida's state legislature is considering a bill that would increase safety regulations for rides. The Tyree Sampson Act would require any ride more than 100 feet tall to have seatbelts in addition to other restraints. It would also increase training standards for ride attendants and inspections. The attendant who strapped Samson in the day he was killed had only been on the job three days and was considered a trainee, according to the state investigation. Dodd welcomes the changes, but wishes they'd come sooner. A year later, is it easier? Is it just as difficult? It's difficult because a year later, we're coming across birthdays and holidays and family functions and we have a spot where there's no Tyree. And so crews hope to have the entire ride taken down in time for the one year mark this time next week. The terms of the settlement were not disclosed. And Samson's mother tells me she hopes to start a foundation in her son's honor. Don, as for the uh, criminal investigation into this accident, we're told that is still ongoing. And the manufacturer of the ride, they declined to comment. Carlos Suarez in Orlando this morning. Thank you, Carlos. President Trump's team now preparing for a potential indictment. How strong is the case? We've got two legal minds, great ones standing by, but they do not agree. We'll let them tell you why next. Having spoken and met with them so many times, do you believe that an indictment is imminent? I do. Okay. And uh, do you, when do you think it can happen, sooner rather than later? Let's all hope it's sooner rather than later, because everyone needs to be held accountable. Yeah. Everyone needs to be held to the same standard of the law, and that includes former presidents. And he is speaking about one former president in particular, former President Trump. That is his ex-attorney, Michael Cohen, who says he's confident an indictment is coming soon from the Manhattan District Attorney's hush money case. Michael Cohen, of course, has been a crucial piece of the puzzle in that case. He's the one who actually made the $130,000 payment to the adult film actress Stormy Daniels right before the election day in 2016 to kill her allegations of an affair with Trump from going public. The former publisher of the National Enquirer, David Pecker, allegedly helped arrange that payment. He has also testified before the grand jury. This wasn't only the hush money payment, the only hush money payment, I should note. Michael Cohen also says there was a similar arrangement to pay off former Playboy model Karen McDougal, who says she had an affair with Trump. And there's a tape of that conversation with Trump as well. Listen to this. I need to open up a company for the transfer of all of that info regarding our friend David, you know, so that I'm going to do that right away. I've actually come up and I've spoken, and I've spoken to Alan Weisselberg about how to set the whole thing up uh, with funding. Yes, Um, and it's 
all the stuff, all the stuff, because you know you never know where that company, you never know where he's going to be. Correct. So I'm I'm all over that, and I spoke to Alan about it when it comes time for the financing, which will be what financing? We'll have to pay you. So no, 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 no. I got. Gosh, we forgot about that one. That's a tape from Michael Cohen recording his client at the time when they were still on good terms. The question is this morning is if prosecutors do decide to indict Trump, how strong is their case? To bring us their perspective, we have CNN's senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig, who says prosecutors are facing an uphill battle, and former Watergate prosecutor Nick Ackerman, who sees it differently. He sees straightforward wrongdoing by the former president. You think, I want to start with you because sure. you have a different opinion than what we've heard kind of overwhelmingly, which is that you actually think that it is a strong case against Well, Trump. it's a strong case if you include the overall theme of falsifying records. That is, if you go with the same thing that Letitia James went through with the attorney general's office. In the Trump organization. Right, in the Trump organization. That the entire organization is just, it's a panoply, a potpourri of criminal activity with false financial statements every year where they increase the values of property in order to get more money from the government on the taxes, where they gave um, environmental... Uh, gifts to the government. Uh, They committed bank fraud by increasing the values of various uh, assets in the Trump organization. Um, Donald Trump took the Fifth Amendment over 400 times when he was questioned by the attorney general. Now, that can't be used in the criminal case. Yeah, a separate one we should Right, but in a civil case, you would do that with every single criminal act that you have because you can use an adverse inference in the civil case. So if you sit back and say, well, what is the prosecutor doing with that? There have got to be at least five or six items in there that can be charged against Trump and put together in a pattern to show the complete activity of how that organization and how Donald Trump ran it by falsifying the records. And certainly the Stormy Daniels' situation fits right into that. It's part of the pattern. And, and Stormy and, Daniels um, testifying, at least appearing in front before the grand jury, day before yesterday, I believe, uh, via Zoom. But you guys disagree because, and correct me if I'm wrong, of the, on the strength of this case because of Michael Cohen's credibility or lack thereof credibility, which well, you guys that's believe? That's one of the main points. I mean, let's be clear. This is not a criminal case about the overvaluation, undervaluation of assets. That's the civil case. There's no indication that that's what the DA is looking for. All of our reporting, all the public indications are that this criminal case is focused only on the payment of hush money. And I see a lot of problems with that case. First of all, the conduct is ancient. This happened six and a half years ago. That is an eternity. But he was in office and that he was in office. Before he was in office, when he was running for office. When he was running for office right. and then he was in office, so he had some protection. Sure. So, yeah. And two and a half Shield years have lapsed since right. then. But it's hard to make that case to a jury to care about something that happened when Barack Obama was president. When kids who are in college right now were in middle school. That's a long time ago. Michael Cohen is the central witness here. Michael Cohen, look, I know him personally. I happen to like him. I respect him. But let's be clear. He's going to get ripped apart on the witness stand. This is a man who is a convicted perjurer. He's convicted of committing financial fraud tax fraud. He's a man who Nick's former office, my former office, the Southern District of New York, rejected him because they said he's not credible enough to testify. Can I just somebody push back on something you said? Uh, because 
you're saying it happened such a long time ago. Is that, I mean, really? Is that uh, no, viable? I, 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 it's I like there's a, there should be a statute of limitations well, I, on wrongdoing when it comes to... There is a statute there of is. limitations, and it's within the statute of limitations. And the wrongdoing isn't just paying off a, a film star. It's also setting up the phony records in the Trump organization so they file false tax returns. It's, it's, a, it's a matter of not just a campaign violation, but it's also a violation of New York State federal... A criminal tax. Juries care about this stuff, though. If a case feels like it's dredged up from the distant past, that will that will work against prosecutors. It will feel less urgent, and it will, f- frankly, feed the defense that this is just something that was pulled up for political reasons. And that's what Trump has been saying all along. And the New York Times is reporting today on how they are preparing to go on attack mode. I don't think they really know any other <laughs> mode, but they are. They're preparing a database of basically people who. Uh, I have argued there is not a strong case here. And so if this does happen, because it seems like we are heading in that direction, I think it's important to be realistic about what's going to happen on the other side of an indictment. Yes, but we don't know what that indictment is going to be. We're all just speculating. Or if there's we, going to be an indictment. Or if there's going to be yeah. an indictment. But, but clearly, the, there's been a joint investigation between the DA's office and the AG's office. The press has completely overlooked the fact that some of these items could be joined, just like... Uh, Fonnie Willis is doing in Georgia and turn it into a criminal RICO case. I don't think we've overlooked that, but what about the other witnesses here? Because there is the Karen McDougal of it all. Does that help with this, or is it is it not it directly enough tied to it? it? What helps is actually that tape. The real question with Michael Cohen is not whether you like the guy, whether he's a good guy. When you go to the jury, the question is, was he telling you the truth? And what you're going to look at is the other evidence, which are going to be the documents in this case, with Donald Trump signing his name to checks that were provided to um, uh, Michael Cohen. Uh, you've got the phonying up of all the records that relate to this supposedly being for legal purposes and legal services when it was not. You've got other witnesses who are probably going to come in from the Trump organization to testify about how this was set up and how it was out of the ordinary. The question only with Michael Cohen is, can you corroborate what he's saying? I had a witness in a criminal case. He admitted to 12 murders. I convicted people based on his testimony. Every, every witness has credit. Has right, everyone. Well, You're cross, sir. About, about <laughs> Here's the thing with Michael Cohen. He is corroborated to an extent. There's no yeah. question these payments were made. We've all seen the checks. There's no question they falsified the documents. But the key question here is, can you tie Donald Trump to the falsification of those documents? As far as we know, the only person who's going to do that is Michael Cohen. Let's, let's, again, be straight on Michael Cohen here. The man lied to Congress under oath. The man lied to the media many times under oath. He lied to the Federal Election Commission under oath. Michael Cohen said to the FEC this before he flipped. He said there was nothing illegal about these payments. He said that, again, in a way he could be punished under, under oath to the FEC. He has lied to virtually everybody. He said yesterday to me, I'm not lying about this, and there are other people who are going in. I'm just playing devil's yeah. advocate. No, no, there are other witnesses who were with Trump and who may know about this, who have all been interviewed by Bragg's office. Yeah. <clears throat> I just, excuse me, I'm having the same issue that you're having this morning. Contagious. Um, I've got to ask you, as I was speaking to sources uh, about this um, in the last days and, and yesterday, they said, it, this is not just about the hush money payment. This is about exposure to Donald Trump in other areas. What will happen with Bragg's office is that people will learn about Donald Trump's business. This will lead to other things. I don't know if it'll lead to other investigations, but they are surprised at this point 
um, the concern about what, what is coming out of this, the, what the witnesses are telling them, and what these prosecutors and others are learning about Donald Trump's Well, look business. at this tape that we just played at the beginning of this. I mean, that puts Donald Trump right in the middle of this whole plot to essentially set up a situation with the National Enquirer to catch and kill every woman who's going to come across the pike and basically yeah. talk about Donald Trump before the election. Yeah. yeah, and we have to go, but can I make an important point here, which is that when Trump was in office and I was covering the White House, he denied knowing about the payment. He said to reporters, you have to ask Michael Cohen. Rudy Giuliani later went on Fox News and admitted Trump reimbursed Michael Cohen for this payment. Trump obviously does not easily part with ways with his money, and I think that's such a, an important part here. But didn't the um, attorney... The, the attorney, the one who's representing him, or at least speaking for him on television, I know right. people don't like to be called, as I find out TV attorneys, I, I thought it was a compliment, but apparently someone took issue with saying that. But didn't he admit sort of that Donald Trump knew about it right. and that in this interview on another network and in, in a sense lied about it because he did not want to break the agreement? Yeah, Kay- Caitlin's right. That's a good piece of evidence for the prosecution, the fact that on Air Force One, Donald Trump denied he knew about it. We know he knew about it. The response that we've heard from Joe Tacopina, the lawyer, is... He felt like he was bound by this non-disclosure agreement. And I think the better answer there is he denied making this payment for the same reason he made the payment in the first place. He was trying to avoid personal embarrassment to him and his family. Yeah. All right, we got to leave it there. Great conversation. <laughs> we knew that was going to go keep long. Going. All right, keep going. Really going Nick, Nick Ackerman, thank you both thank for being you. here. Thank you for getting us out of there. <laughs> a political flashpoint in France. Hundreds of protesters clashing with police. This is a sign to what's happening in the U.S., right, in these elections. After the government forced through a controversial plan to raise the country's retirement age. Are you listening, Republican candidates? This is happening on the streets of Paris right now. Fiery protests erupting. France, all across France, after the government forced through controversial plans to raise the country's retirement age from 62 to 64. President Emmanuel Macron resorted to constitutional powers because he did not have enough votes to pass the bill. At least 310 people detained overnight in clashes between police and protesters who say the pension overhaul is unfair and unnecessary. We're going to get straight now to CNN's Sam Kiley, live for us in Paris with more on this. Sam, hello to you. These visuals are remarkable. What's the latest on the ground there? Well, Don, I mean, Paris is sort of waking up to the hangover of what happened uh, last night with these uh, very much more violent than had been anticipated. And above all, they were spontaneous demonstrations against Macron's policy to force through this legislation because he just didn't have the majority in the National Assembly. And here is part of the reason why it is so visible in this country. And this is not just Paris, but right across the country. Public workers have gone on strike because of this effort being made by the government to reduce a $12.5 million stroke euro deficit they've got in pensions. Now, the city has been clogged now for some days, or weeks rather, because of the uh, garbage that's being left out on the streets. Don, but also that we've seen uh, strikes with railway workers, teachers, all kinds of others. Indeed, on this street here, uh, the local uh, restaurants are having to pay for garbage collection privately in order to keep uh, the sanitation for their operations uh, within the bounds of decency. But it is indecency that the 
French population, the vast majority of the French population, are saying that Macron's policy of raising the retirement age for, from 62 to 64 is all about. They're saying this strikes at the very heart of the French way of life. And more than two-thirds of the population of the country so far su support this strike action, and particularly the unions. And it's the unions now who want to try to get a grip on these demonstrations, dial down the violence, but bring up the public disruption that is ongoing here, Don. Uh, it's interesting to see all the disruption and the protest uh, over this. Sam Colley on the streets of Paris for us today. Thank you, Sam. All right, back here in the U.S., day one of March Madness and already one of the biggest upsets so far. Princeton shocking everyone, including the University of Arizona, how they pulled off their win and busted even President Biden's bracket next. Shocking themselves, too. Yeah. More CNN this morning to come after the break. You know what day it is, right? St. Patrick's Day. Oh, I was going to say Friday, but <laughs> yes, St. Patrick's is, Day it is. Well. We are both right on this. Poppy is off today. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We're going to start at five things to know for this St. Patrick's Day, Friday, March 17th. New overnight, China has announced that President Xi Jinping will be going to Russia for the first visit since the invasion of Ukraine comes at a very crucial moment in the war when there's growing fears that Beijing might send weapons to help Putin. And sheriff's deputies and hospital workers have been charged with murder this morning after a black man died at a mental health facility in Virginia. Prosecutors arguing that surveillance video shows him being, quote, smothered. His grieving mother says her son was treated worse than a dog. Also, a CNN exclusive. Dozens of workers at Mar-a-Lago have been called to testify in the special counsel's investigation of former President Trump. Everyone from restaurant servers to a housekeeper will tell you why they could potentially be key witnesses. All right, this sounds like a movie, but it is real, okay? An absolutely monstrous 5,000-mile-wide blob of algae is heading to Florida. It is so big that you can see it from outer space. We're going to tell you when and where it is expected to come ashore. And Taylor Swift fans are rejoicing this morning. We'll have the new tracks that she dropped while you were sleeping. Seen in this morning starts right now. A very big news day. It is Friday. We're going to start with Russia getting a major show of support from China as the war rages in Ukraine. Beijing just announcing this morning that Chinese President Xi Jinping will head to Moscow next week for the first time since the invasion began to meet face to face with Vladimir Putin. So this is all coming at a very critical moment in the war. Russia is desperately trying to turn the tide, and U.S. officials have warned that China is thinking about sending weapons to help, but Beijing has been casting itself as a peacemaker, and Chinese officials insist that is what this meeting is all about. China will uphold an objective and fair position on Ukraine crisis and play a constructive role in promoting talks for peace. CNN's Will Ripley, live for us in Taiwan this morning. Will, hello to you. Will the Kremlin, well, the Kremlin here says that this meeting is about strategic cooperation. What do you know? 
Well, it depends on what kind of strategic cooperation uh, they're actually talking about, because China is claiming that this is about urging peace and promoting talks. Remember, they put out this 12-point document with a plan to end the what they called kind of special military operation using Russia's lingo. They, China refuses to condemn the invasion. They refuse to even call it an invasion. And even though President Xi uh, is trying to portray himself as a neutral a diplomat, a peacemaker, he hasn't even been willing to get on the phone with President Zelensky of Ukraine. And now his first overseas visit after his endorsement as president for third term, an unprecedented third term in China, it really just uh, show that Xi's priorities uh, are, you know, on his authoritarian best bud, Vladimir Putin, uh, as they continue to entrench against the West and help really Russia kind of minimize the impact for regular people of the sanctions uh, by the West, as well as providing potentially uh, microchips and other things that Russia needs for its military and the U.S., of course, concerned, as you mentioned, uh, that they could be providing lethal support or at least considering providing lethal support. There was a Chinese made drone that was shot down uh, over uh, eastern Ukraine in recent days. Is there any reason to believe China? Because China says that they want to urge peace here. Well, their definition of peace might be very different from the Ukrainians. Uh, and again, how can you paint yourself as a as a neutral party when you won't even talk to one side of the negotiation? Uh, this, you know, because of this no limits partnership that she and Putin declared, uh, you know, around the time of the of the Winter Olympics, uh, essentially they're standing in each other's corner no matter what the West says. And that could potentially be a problem. A lot of analysts look at this and think that China is supporting Russia, even considering arming Russia, because a Russian victory in Ukraine would not only be humiliating for the United States, but could embolden Xi's own uh, potential plans on this self-governing democracy here, where I am, Taiwan. Well, Ripley in Taiwan, thank you well. Also this morning, the special counsel that's investigating former President Trump, Jack Smith, is now digging deeper into his handling of secret and classified documents Sources tell CNN at least two dozen people who work at Mar-a-Lago have now been subpoenaed to testify. It's not just top people you may recognize from television. That includes everybody from restaurant servers to a housekeeper, members of Trump's inner circle. They could potentially be key witnesses based on what they may have seen or heard at the Florida estate, where FBI agents, as we know, found a stash of classified documents upon that search warrant that was executed in August, including some of the nation's most closely guarded secrets. Just yesterday, our camera saw one of Trump's top communications aides at the courthouse in Washington, where she appeared before the grand jury. You can see her going in there. Senior legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed is here with us. I think what I'm most struck by is just the depth of these subpoenas going from they want to talk to Trump's attorneys. They want to talk to people who are serving dinner at the restaurants. They want to talk to everybody. It's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, clearly, the special counsel is going wide and he's going deep all the way down to people serving burgers at Mar-a-Lago. But what they want to know is, have you seen anything? Have you heard anything about classified documents or boxes that could have contained classified documents? Because they're investigating not only the potential mishandling of classified materials, but also any efforts to potentially obstruct this investigation. So, for example, in addition to the groundskeeper and the housekeeper, they're also talking to someone who was seen on security footage helping another aide, Walt Nada, move some boxes. You know, so they're really talking to everyone in this investigation, leaving no stone unturned, clearly. And Evan Corcoran. Yes. He is a Trump attorney. People may not. He represented Steve Bannon. They may recognize him. We are waiting to find out what 
the chief judge in Washington is going to decide. They're trying to basically get him to testify without using attorney-client privilege, where he doesn't have to answer certain questions. Exactly. He's already gone before the grand jury, and during that appearance, he declined to answer questions about communications he had with the former president. That's attorney-client privilege 101. But the special counsel has been pretty aggressive here. They're trying to get around that, arguing that the, the, his advice may have been used in a crime. It's called a crime-fraud exception. And we're waiting for a judge to make this decision. Now, she moves on from the bench. She basically ages onto a new role uh, at 5 p.m. today. So you and I are going to continue to be pinging our sources relentlessly. She's really bringing it down to the wire in terms of this decision, because this is really one of the most nationally significant questions legally that's out there right now. Yeah, the Trump team thought it was coming yesterday. Clearly, it hasn't happened yet. Paula Reed, great to have you on set. Likewise. And more news this morning. We're talking about First Republic Bank and the bank situation. This is First Republic, so issues set to receive a $30 billion lifeline from a group of uh, America's 11 largest banks. Shares in the San Francisco lender had been sliding since last week's failure of Silicon Valley Bank. The money will give First Republic the much-needed cash to meet customer withdrawals and build confidence in the U.S. banking system. Let's get to CNN's Christine Romans joining us now. Good morning again. Good morning to you. Again, we've seen a lot of you. You just sit here uh, and we'll just say, Christine, what's happening now? Uh, so seriously, what is happening now? Why People are wondering, why First Republic? Why are they being propped up? Because First Republic was really teetering here. And a lot of people were worried that this could be another bank that could fail. And financial stability is incredibly important. So you have banks bailing out a rival, banks bailing out a competitor, another bank, putting in $30 billion to help cover some of these uninsured deposits on the books of First Republic. And really, you got to think about financial stability like like a public utility. It's almost like clean water and electricity, right? You want your banks to be healthy and work. And so it's good for these banks that are uh, healthy to make sure they step in and prop up this bank that is not. So um, this had a bank, First Republic had, I think, 68% of the deposits on its books were uninsured deposits. So those the people who have uninsured deposits are looking around for places to put the money so where it can be uh, insured. So you've seen a lot of money flowing out of First Republic, and this is trying to stanch that flow. Yeah. New York Times says this arrangement was without precedent in decades and just an indication of how dire. It, it's an indication that, look, first last week we had the FDIC is now going to, on a couple of banks, is going to insure all the deposits of Signature Bank and SVB. And then you have this Fed lending facility, which I would like to say is a success so far. $12 billion has been lent out to banks under this Fed facility that was announced last weekend. So that's another sign of these different kinds of instruments that have been deployed to make sure that the oxygen in America's financial system, its banking system, is working and healthy. Everybody watching the market and the banks. Absolutely. System. Thank you for seeing You're me. welcome. Appreciate that. Also this morning, we're tracking a story out of Virginia where three hospital workers are now facing murder charges after 28-year-old Ivo Otieno died in custody at a state mental health facility last week. This is his picture here. Seven sheriff's deputies, the one on the screen now, are also facing second-degree murder charges. CNN's Brian Todd is joining us from live outside of the Dinwiddie County Courthouse in Virginia. Brian, what do we know so far about this? What is the county, the county saying about you know, pieces of evidence here? Well, as for that security footage, uh, Caitlin, the family of Ivo Otieno has viewed that security footage of his death. This is video that has not been released to the public, but the family and their lawyers have described to us what it was like to watch that, saying it was excruciating to watch. 
Today, three more people charged with second-degree murder in the death of 28-year-old Ivo Ocheno in custody. All three are employees of the Central State Hospital Mental Health Facility in Virginia, where Ocheno was taken on March 6th. That's in addition to seven sheriff's deputies already charged with second-degree murder. He was murdered. They smothered the breath out of my baby. They murdered my baby. His family has now seen video of the fatal incident. At what point do we stop preserving life? At what point do we consider mental illness a crime? Prosecutors say Ocheno died of asphyxiation after being held down for 11 or 12 minutes. Restrained so brutally with knee on his neck, the weight of seven individuals on his body while he's face down handcuffed with leg irons. Ocheno was arrested on March 3rd after police say they responded to a burglary call next door to his home and took him to the hospital for evaluation where he became quote physically assaultive. His mother says she pleaded with the police. So they pulled him off treatment, took him to jail, didn't take him down there with any medicine. After a weekend in jail, where prosecutors say video shows Ocheno was pepper sprayed, punched and mistreated, he was brought to the Central State Mental Facility on March 6th, where authorities allege he became combative. And the videos are never confrontational with them. He is not posing a threat to them. He's not violent are aggressive with them. In court this week, an early glimpse of the deputy's potential defense, one lawyer citing this. The ongoing issues that he had been, that they had been having with this uh, individual with regards to his disorderly conduct, with regards to his aggression, with regards to his resistance. But his family says what he needed was help. What do you want to see happen to these deputies, either of you? Justice. I would like them put away, if you ask me, for life. That they don't see the light of day again. What they did to my son was horrific. Horrific. We've reached out to the Central State Hospital Mental Facility for their response to the charging of three of their employees with second-degree murder. We have not heard back. We have also reached out to the attorneys identified so far for the deputies charged in this case. We've only heard back in detail from one of them who told us that their client looks forward to being vindicated in court. Caitlin? Yeah, well, we'll stay tuned to see what the evidence shows. Brian Todd, thank you. Now to the weather, portions of the Gulf. Gulf Coast bracing for strong storms today. It comes after dozens of powerful storms have pelted the region, bringing hail in some cases as large as three inches in diameter. We've got to get now to CNN's Chad Myers. Chad, you have been busy this week as well. You and Christine Romans have both had a week. What is going on here? You know, the storms that were in Texas are now to a place that's very close to your heart, Baton Rouge. I mean, we're not talking about severe weather right now, but certainly thunder and lightning. Make sure the pets are inside. You get inside, especially when the lightning is dancing around there. This is the weather we had yesterday, though. 49 reports of hail, nine reports that were bigger than two inches, two inches. Here's a Clementine in parts of Texas. That's how big this hail was. And in Fort Worth, we were talking 
bigger than that. Three-inch hailstones. Weatherford, Fort Worth, especially the northern suburbs, that's where the weather was yesterday. Today, it's a little bit farther to the south and not as severe. There may be a landfalling water spout. There may be still something with some wind down there. But today has calmed down significantly compared to yesterday. There will be some showers in big cities that want to celebrate St. Patrick's Day today. Maybe take an umbrella or a poncho or whatever you do to stay dry. Yeah, pack your Don. green coat. I did wear a green <laughs> overcoat today. I, weathermen can't wear green because we disappear. <laughs> yeah, I know. I didn't, we didn't wear it on the air. Caitlin and I were talking about it. Neither of us wore green today, but I do. I'll show you. I can get my yeah. green coat is back. There. I had a green suit on on Wednesday at an Irish event, so I think that counts. Uh, that works. Good yeah. enough. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Chad. Appreciate that. You know, it is a four-letter word that is becoming quite the tongue twister for some Republicans. We're unpacking the word woke and what it could mean heading into the 2024 race. Also, Republican members of the House Oversight Committee in Washington say that they have the receipts, what they're saying now about the Biden family and a million dollar payment from a company in China. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We will end woke. Wokeness is a virus more dangerous than any pandemic hands down. They were one of the most woke banks in uh, their in their quest for uh, the ESG type, uh, type policy. I think it's all because of the woke mind virus. It is warping people. We will never ever surrender to the woke mob. Our state is where woke goes to die. Oh boy. Well, the hottest fight in the American culture wars right now is over wokeness. Republican politicians and media figures blame wokeness for everything from censorship to bank failures. But what exactly does it mean to be woke? That means to be that term that seems to be hard to define, really, even for some of its greatest opponents. I want you to watch this viral clip of conservative columnist Bethany Mandel struggling with that question. Here it is. Would you mind defining woke? Because it's come up a couple times and I just want to make sure we're on the same page. So, I mean, woke is sort of the idea that um, I this is going to be one of those moments that goes viral. I mean, woke is something that's very hard to define. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> that was Alyssa Farrah Griffin joins us now, senior political commentator, former Trump White House communications director. Good morning. Good We've morning. all been on live television. You lose your train of thought. You know, someone tries to help you out usually in the moment, but it, it happens. But it's been, it, that was a tough moment, don't you think? Well, and it sounds like it's kind of the core of one of the arguments yeah. that she's making in a book that she writes. So woke is, it's kind of become, remember that the dress where it's like you either saw it in blue or white? Mm -hmm. It's It means something to certain people. There's a Merriam-Webster's definition of it, which is being in touch with. And, right there. Yes, yeah. exactly. And caring about social justice causes and actively involved in them. But to the other half of the country, let's call it that, it means something completely different. Um, I do see why it has been a valuable and energizing rallying cry for the conservative base, because I think how it's generally interpreted is to mean you know, it's more of a fear of cancel culture. I would put it, I would say that's how a lot of, I think, conservatives see it, is if I say something that's even slightly off, the woke mob is going to come and get me. However, it's now turned into something where 
everything's woke. Banks are woke. ESG's woke. I, I disagree with you. I don't think it's a blue and white dress. I think it's, listen, we know it came into Michael Brown, which we covered the, in, in Ferguson. I think it's, it, I know it's something that has been co-opted by uh, conservatives and people who are running for office because it gets a very big response from people like CRT, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's, oh, that's definitely right. And I'm not sure that, um, I think that words become devoid of meaning if you use them for everything. And this has become such a catch-all term. Um, I think that we are much better as Republicans when we're leaning into something like can- cancel culture. It's, it's tangible. People get it. If I say one word that's unpopular or I misuse the proper phrase, even if my heart was in the right place, your career could be over the next day. Mm-hmm. That, I think, is a valid fight that resonates with people. The wokeism, it's, it is. It's co-opting a term from another community and trying to make it a catch-all phrase for things that bother you about the direction the culture is going. And I, I think it's worth noting that Republicans even view it differently. Not all Republicans are using it in the same way. Like, we've seen, you know, Governor DeSantis use it. We've seen Governor Sarah, Sarah Sanders in, uh, in Arkansas use it. Vivek Ramaswamy is a candidate. He's running for the Republican nomination for president. I interviewed him recently, and he, he's had a, written a whole book called Woke Inc. Mm-hmm. on this. And so I, I asked him to define how he sees it. I'm going to define it in neutral terms, not in critical terms. Being woke refers to becoming alert to invisible societal injustices, generally based on genetically inherited characteristics like race, sex, and sexual orientation, and then being called upon to act on those injustices using whatever potential legally means are necessary, including the market to do it. That's a neutral definition that even most proponents of wokeism in the United States would agree with. Now, my criticism of this is I think that it's inherently divisive to tell us that we're nothing more than the characteristics we inherit on the day we're born. That divides us on the basis of race and sex and sexual orientation. And then when that merges with capitalism, which is what I've actually been the biggest critic of, what it does is we lose the sanctuary, the apolitical sanctuary in our economy that otherwise brings us together, whether we're black or white, even whether we're Democrat or Republican. He's essentially saying, don't just use it as like a tool, like present an alternative, like affirmative action uh, vision to it. I mean, that's probably a better definition than I've seen among most Republicans. But even so, I think it goes further than anything that translates into tangible policy positions. And that's where I kind of take issue with, you know, Ron DeSantis is making this sort of the focal point of his, his, you know, soon to come campaign, which is, What does it mean to you? I mean, is it the war with Disney? Is it a war with DEI and ESG? Or is it more about just like cultural norms and the way that we interact with the people around us? He's wrong on that. It is not about defining people for a characteristic. It is about being aware. It is about being aware of issues that have to do with minorities, the structure of the country, issues that have to do with women, issues that have to do with any marginalized community. That's what it is, not defining people. It's being aware of the structural injustices in our society and trying to be better, not trying to cancel people. So I think that he's wrong on that. And I always tell my friends who, you know, use woke, I'm like, don't use that word. It's like, you know, there are certain words like, it, it's it just it's not a good look. Well, and if I can be honest, as a Republican voter and a base voter, I, I don't actually care a ton about this. It's issue. polling and I, well, and I, right? But I do see why it polls well. Yeah. I don't think it's going to last. Like, it's... You don't? I, it, it works in a Republican primary, but then we're going to have... The, the nature of our country is something is going to happen that requires you to care and be attentive to social injustices. And then suddenly it's once again going to be in vogue to be woke. And I just don't know that I think it's a lasting argument. 
I want to switch topics slightly to move on to Pence, because you used to work for the vice president. He came under criticism for a comment he made about Pete Buttigieg when he was making those comments, where everyone focused really what I, on what he said about January 6th. And, and the Buttigieg's are, he was criticizing Pete Buttigieg for taking paternity leave. And Chastin, Pete Buttigieg's husband, said it flies in the face of what he is, you know, a family values kind of person. Pence did not apologize. He said, you know, not only can Buttigieg not do his job, he can't take a joke. Did it surprise you that Pence went there with that? Yes. So I've said this before because I've asked about it recently. I didn't I didn't think the joke landed. And I thought the maternity part of it particularly bothered me. It's, it's, a, it's a father. It's also women have had to fight a lot for getting, you know, paid family leave and those things. The joke didn't land. I also think at the same time we've been to that event. It is a roast. Um, mm-hmm. There were anti-LGBTQ undertones to it, which I don't think is wise for Pence, who has to make inroads with that community if he, in fact, wants to be a general election candidate. But um, I, it was a joke that didn't land. And you, he has to make inroads with that community because of his history of... Correct. With that, with the, with as that governor of Indiana. As governor of Indiana. Well, and I would know. And also running for office, what he has said about the LGBTQ community and his tacit uh, support of gay conversion therapy uh, as well, You're not, not wanting to put things into law because he says we shouldn't encourage this type of behavior uh, and people should want to, for people who want to change that type of behavior. I remind my party, 67% of Republicans believe in rights to support and protect the LGBTQ community, yet we keep boosting politicians who seem to be going backward on gay rights. Alyssa, thanks for joining us at the table this morning. Thank you. Alyssa, you'll be interested in this. And you folks at home, too. Because it sounds like a... I just saw that. It sounds like, like a... Ba- like a, Remember the 1970s... It's like a, a horror blob. movie. A blob of... It's serious, though. A blob of smelly seaweed twice the width of the U.S. headed towards Florida's coast. Layla Santiago live in Key West this morning. Hi, Layla. Hey, good morning, guys. Take a look behind me. They are cleaning these beaches as we speak because of this stuff that you see here. Seaweed, lots of it coming this way. Scientists say in record numbers. We'll have that story coming up. Arch Madness has officially begun. There's nothing more fun than carefully filling out your bracket and then losing to a co-worker who pronounces UCLA as UCLA. <laughs> that is that would be literally me, me and you. <laughs> and don't forget Anderson. It was Anderson's a little bit the same way when it comes to sports as I am. The, I know a little bit more than him. Yeah, you do, you do. All right, the Alabama Crimson Tide, as you saw yesterday, they did advance to the second round of the men's NCAA tournament, but there were some huge upsets that busted millions of March Madness brackets on day one. Andy Scholes. Breaks it all down for us. Andy, I mean, it wasn't even... What's doing? It wasn't even... <laughs> it wasn't even sundown on day one. Even President Biden's bracket was busted because he had Arizona winning it all. Yep, yep. If you're President Biden uh, or anyone who had Arizona, you know, this is what your bracket looks like this morning, guys. <laughs> Just red X's all over it, and you're in for a tournament of sadness now because you have no chance of winning your pool or competition if that's what your bracket looks like. But, you know, filling out a perfect bracket, it's impossible, right? Out of the tens of millions of brackets that were filled out this year, this is it, 787, the only ones that remain perfect according to NCAA.com. And that's because we saw so many crazy things happen yesterday, including an all-time great win by the Furman Paladins. Clark gets it in, gets it back with 10. Clark double-teamed along the baseline, throws it up the floor, intercepted by Heem. Pegues for 
three and the win. He got it with 2.2 to go. Virginia come back to the Just incredible Virginia fans in shock of what they just saw. And check out this Furman fan praying every single prayer she knew to the hoping that her paladins would hang on and win and they did Furman, the smallest school in the tournament less than 2700 students knocking off virginia 68 67 paladins from greenville south carolina making most of their first trip to march madness in 43 years they're moving on to the second round but Furman wasn't even the biggest upset of the day as we mentioned 15 seed princeton they took the lead on two seed Arizona with two minutes to go. And then the Wildcats didn't score in the final four minutes and 45 seconds of the game. Tigers just a massive upset there. This is the third straight year and 11th time overall a 15 seed is able to beat uh, a number two seed in the first round. You know, guys, I don't want to say I told you so, but I told you so. If you were paying attention on Monday, remember I brought up Ken Palm? It measures offensive and defensive efficiency. I said you had to be top 40 offense, top 22 defense. These are the only two, only teams that could win right now. These teams are close. All of these teams are still alive or haven't played yet. Who wasn't on here that I said? Arizona. Yep. I also showed you this map. Since 1997, every single champion was east of this line going down the middle. Where's Arizona? They're over here. So it's not looking good again for the West Coast guys. They only got UCLA and Gonzaga over there left. Texas actually on the other side of that line as well. So we'll see. We'll see what happens, but we should be in for more chaos later today. I'm not going to start. Yeah, I know. Yes. I'm not going to start an SEC champ, but I would like to. But I mean, even Biden's bracket was busted. He had Arizona winning it all. Yeah, not good. Not good. <laughs> <laughs> you got Arizona winning it all. That's uh, your you know, answer. That, that, not good. <laughs> that, that that's rough that's rough Andy who are you watching today uh well you know today let's see you you got uh Purdue in action as a one seed and then you know there, there's a lot of more potential upsets today you know Miami versus Drake a lot of people like Drake as a 12 seed Indiana versus Kent State Kent State's got a lot of veterans on that team so that's a situation where we could have a 13 and a 12 moving on those are some games uh, I'm excited to watch and uh of course you know, you can't go wrong with any of the games, especially early. Michigan State in action. Yep. Old well, Tom Drake Rizzo. is on there. He's a, thought, he's a vet. I thought Drake was Canadian. Oh, my God. <laughs> Get out. Oh, boy, Leave Don. Set. Oh, boy. Don's going to end up winning the All bracket. Right. You watch. Andy Schultz, my favorite time of year. Thank you so much. All right. We're going to take right. you outside now, all right, because this is a live look at sunny Isles Beach, Florida. Uh, this morning where a giant mass of stinky seaweed could soon be headed to that area right there, that beach. The 5,000-mile-wide stretch has um, stench, I should say. Is that right? Stretch. Has hit Barbados uh, already and is uh, threatening its ecosystem and its tourism industry. Scientists are worried about the environmental and the health impact as it invades coasts along the Caribbean or Caribbean and heads toward Florida. Let's get straight now to CNN's Leila Santiago. She is live for us in Key West. So listen, it, it sounds weird and funny, but this is actually very serious. We're seeing a massive bloom of seaweed. What is causing it? Yeah, listen, Don, here it is. Here's some of that stinky seaweed that you just mentioned here. Scientists have been tracking this particular patch of it since 2011. And they say that this year it could be coming in record numbers. We could see the largest bloom yet coming this way and it could be a new normal. It's 
thick in the summertime builds up and smells terrible. Joe Kaplan captured these images about a week ago. Massive amounts of seaweed washing up at Smathers Beach, a beach he knows well because he walks it several times a week. I was shocked when I saw it that day where it wasn't even spring yet. It's still winter which is very unusual. And this is about a 5,000 mile long. Professor Shalman, who is one of the leading experts on what many have referred to as a massive blob of seaweed heading to Florida's coast. Fair to call it a blob? Nope. No, <laughs> no we can't call it a blob. Okay. I, I would never call that a blob. Okay, okay. why? <laughs> because it's not. Satellite images, he says, show it's not one massive body of seaweed, rather a bunch of patchy clumps traveling from West Africa. It's called the Atlantic Sargassum Belt and is considered a natural phenomenon. Right now, it's twice the width of the U.S., carrying 6 million tons of seaweed and headed to the East Coast. In June of this year, it may turn into 20 million tons. So let me get this straight. This, what we're seeing the last month, is 6 million tons and it's going to get bigger. Yes, there's no way to stop that. This is nature, it's just like no one can stop a hurricane. Should we be worried about that? Nope. Why? The uh, reason is the sargassum is not toxic. But it smells pretty bad, and it's a nuisance for those trying to keep beaches clean to attract tourists. Just a few years ago, here's what it looked like in Mexico. Officials in Monroe County, which includes the Florida Keys, have set aside more than $200,000 to clean and remove sargassum from its beaches. Seaweed is a mixed blessing. Um, we need it. Seaweed is a uh, nursery for all these large pelagic fish. The negative side to that seaweed is if it comes in the concentrations that uh, I believe we're going to see, um, our fishing grounds are going to be completely covered with it. There's almost no point to fishing because we're going to be spending the entire day cleaning weed off our lines. And as the sargassum belt heads toward Florida, Another natural phenomenon is already hitting its beaches on the West Coast, red tide. It can be toxic, kill fish, and cause respiratory issues. This year's red tide concerns were enough to cancel at least one major event here in Indian Rocks, where one family visiting told us... As soon as my son and my husband and I got out of our car, we all started coughing. But for spring breakers like this group from Iowa, the concerns of massive amounts of seaweed or red tide were not enough to change vacation plans. I would rather it be red tide than raining every day. Tourists noting friends back home. They'd be pretty jealous regardless of having a little bit of the, the red tide symptoms. They'd be pretty jealous that we're here and they're not. Because the pristine beaches of the Sunshine State are hard to resist for many, despite what may be looming offshore. And Don, take a look. You can see they're actually cleaning these beaches, something they do normally every day. But yeah, they're going to be pretty busy if this sargassum comes up to keep these clean, pristine beaches. Now, scientists will tell you they have somewhat of an understanding of the currents and the tide that move this stuff around. Still, more, needs, more research is needed to be able to forecast it. And there's concern that if we try to, you know, quote, fix it or find a solution, it's an ecosystem, right? So there could be unintended consequences here. So when I asked him what his best recommendation was, avoid it. Don? Wow, that okay. would really throw a, a drag. It's a drag for summer. One of the joys of summer is being able to go to the beach, and this would certainly hinder that. Right. Thank you, Layla. Appreciate that. All right, it is being called the selfie effect. How picture-perfect Photoshopped posts on social media are impacting people's mental health, especially that of young girls. Our Sanjay Gupta is here to explain next.
All right, so be honest, probably many of you, right? How many of you have caught yourself aimlessly scrolling through social media, being inundated with supposedly picture-perfect images? You got to get it right. You got to get it right. Everybody's going to see it. Well, believe it a lot. Believe it or not, I should say, there is a name for it. It's called selfie, the selfie effect. And it, not surprisingly, it can have a huge impact on your mood and your psychological health, especially for young female users. In a new episode of the Chasing Life podcast with CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta, he explores this phenomenon. I wonder how much, I'm sure his daughter's had a lot to do with this. I'll ask. Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now. Good morning to you. Real quick, did your daughters influence you in this? Good morning. I, absolutely. Okay. I mean, I think it's the reason that I, I did this this season was because of, and I've never included my daughters. I have three teenage daughters, never included them in anything I've done in the media. But this issue of social media and selfies and all that was something that, you know, it gets talked about all the time. And I've learned a lot, um, which, I, which I know is your question. But let, let, me, let me say this, this idea of the selfie effect um, it's really interesting. First of all, it's a, it's a term that was coined by Professor, uh, Professor Sinclair McBride at Harvard a few years ago. But basically, just like you said, it has to do with this idea that we're, co- we're constantly looking at these selfies of ourselves. People take a lot of selfies and comparing them then to these really remarkable photoshopped filtered images that we see on social media quite a bit. So there's this constant comparison that is happening between ourselves and and between these, you know, basically unfathomable images. And it can lead to feelings, uh, changes in the brain, people feeling uh, inadequate, uh, requiring more dopamine in order to get the same satisfaction from your own looks. It's really interesting. And we're, we're just so inundated with it. People know the Photoshop and the filters and all that exist. And they're aware that they're probably looking at images that have been heavily filtered, and yet they still cannot help but compare their own images to those other images. And that's leading to this this selfie effect, as Professor McBride describes it. That's amazing that it actually changes the chemistry, that it alters the chemistry in your brain from looking at these images. Sanjay, I have a little sister. She's 16 years old. My little brother's 18 or 19 now. But I, I think about this and the effect it had on them. And one thing I think is difficult for parents is how to talk to their kids about it. Because parents did not grow up with Instagram at age 12. You know, they didn't go right. through that and experience that. This is the first generation that's living through that. So what are, what are parents supposed to do here? Well, you know, it's interesting. First of all, um, so my kids are your siblings' age, first of all. So, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with this as a, as, a, as a parent. And a lot of times I look at my own experience. We did not have this growing up, but we did have, you know, magazines and fashion magazines. And there's always been this sort of unattainable uh, imagery that we're surrounded with. Um, that's always been there. What has changed, Caitlin, I think over the last 10, 15 years, is that um, we're now completely inundated with it. So you're carrying around this device in your hand. So whereas you may have had a magazine in the past, you, you read it and then it gets tossed. Now there's this constant abundance of these images and they're persistent. So abundance and persistence of these images, uh, it, it really makes all the difference. You just can't get away from it. But there's also something else. When you look at the filters, for example, they are, and really dissect them and try to understand what are these filters doing, they are creating a conformity of images as well. In fact, I asked Professor Sinclair McBride about this. Here's what she said. A lot of the filters kind of have a very Eurocentric lens. So it would be great if they did not 
make people's skin colors lighter or change the shape of their noses or change how big their eyes are or do things that make them more towards a certain standard of beauty that may not be um, the, from the, the cultural background that they're from, right? Like, I think that would be really clutch. Like, it would be nice if, like, when you put a filter on, it said, you're beautiful as you are, but you can play with this if you want, right? Like, it's, it's just a tool. It's just a thing that is here. But also, this picture of you without the filter is also really cool. Yeah. I learned something, I learned so many things from this podcast, but that idea that these filters create this ethnocentrism, filters and as a general rule will lighten the skin, will change the, uh, the sort of dynamics of the face in a way to create this conformity is what uh, Professor Sinclair McBride was saying. I, I hadn't really thought about that, but as we looked at the filters, it's true. Mm -hmm. But also to your point, Caitlin, this idea as a parent or maybe even as an, as an older sibling to continuously remind people uh, and my kids in this case, that they are beautiful the way they are. They'll roll their eyes at you, as I have found. It'll be a lot, Dad, of course, you have to say that. But they remember it. They but it's remember true. It and it mm. makes a difference. It, it, it's, it's true. It's true, it's, Sanjay. It's, it's, right. so, I'm it's so true. glad. I, I, I'm an, I, I can't wait to listen to this because I notice that these filters, I'm like, why are these sort of uh, European sort of projection of, you know, narrow yeah. nose, whatever, lighter eyes, and that, that has always been frustrating for me. But when I tell my nieces and even, you know, people I know, like, God, you're so beautiful without, like, the makeup and all right. of that, right? You're beautiful with it. But it's just weird that people have this. I was so happy to see Lady Gaga performing at the Oscars with no yeah. makeup. I was like, right on, yeah. Lady Gaga. That's amazing. And I, hopefully something no like that can be a, no filter can be a role model for young people. Yeah, it's amazing. Sanjay, I can't wait to listen Absolutely. to that either. I think that's, it's a, such a good note. Make sure your younger siblings listen to it as well. I will. <laughs> I will. I'm going to send it to them, Sanjay. Thank you so much. My whole family, they're okay. big Sanjay fans, Thank of course. You. So. This is very interesting. I can't wait to hear it. Thanks, Sanjay. You can find uh, Chasing Life whenever, wherever you get your podcast. So make sure you tune into that. The largest school district in Texas is on track to be taken over by the state. Her teachers' concerns about representation and diversity. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. There has been a long time failure by HISD and the victims of that failure are the students. We must continue to protect vulnerable black and brown communities that are gonna be disproportionately impacted by this negative hostile takeover that didn't have to happen. So you're hearing from Texas officials there, the largest school district in Texas, the Houston Independent School District, is in the throes of one of the biggest takeovers in the country's history. The district superintendent and board uh, trustees are expected to be replaced by a new board appointed by the state commissioner of education. And there is concern this morning that the new leaders may not reflect the city's ethnic and racial diversity. Now, the move comes just weeks after the state Supreme Court ruled that the state can remove district officials if their schools fail to meet certain standards. We're going to talk about those standards and all of this now. Joining us now is the president of the Texas State Teachers Association, Ovidia Molina. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Uh, good morning, Don. So you just heard from the officials there. Specifically, you heard from the governor calling this a failure on the part of the school district. How do you respond to that? 
I, I, I send it back to the governor and say he failed all of our schools by underfunding them. Uh, he is part of the problem and uh, should step aside so that the school district can continue to get better. In an op-ed, though, in the Houston Chronicle, the Democratic state uh, representative that authored the amendment to the bill allowing the state to take over HISD writes that he has no regrets. When a student fails once, there are consequences. When the district fails at least five consecutive times, there should be consequences. HISD failed. You say what? We say that 94% of uh, the schools in HISD are performing uh, A, B, or C. And so this is something where you are punishing the whole uh, for a small number. And uh, HISD has made strides. We went from a 50 uh, school, 50 schools uh, with D or F ratings to only 10. Uh, the superintendent currently has a five-year plan that he's not yet at a two-year uh, into. And so if we're going in the, in the direction where uh, we want to be going in HISD, why stop the momentum now? You believe that there is momentum, um, there was momentum being had, and you said that a small number are punishing the whole. I explain that, because the scores are not good. Well, and, and uh, in Texas, we're graded by the STAR test. Our schools are graded by the STAR test and the performance. Mm -hmm. And we know that our students are not standardized. So a standardized test should not uh, tell you everything about what the students or the schools are doing. It should be one thing that is taken into account. Currently in Texas, if a child uh, fails the STAR test, then everything that they've done for the whole year gets wiped out. And that's not fair. Yeah. Well, listen, you're, you're talking about the star scores, which are standardized scores on HISD's website. And we had that up for 2021. The most recent test scores, HISD scored at least 10 points or more lower uh, than the state average. Yeah. And, and as I said before, these are schools that have been uh, underfunded by our state for many, many years. Instead of wrapping around services with our, our schools that are struggling, instead of pouring into our students a little bit more and listening to educators to see what will actually help with our students, uh, the state wants to just tell us what to do without really looking at what the student needs, which is what we do. Yeah, I'm wondering if you think this is political because many uh, officials are calling this move political. Houston is, is a Democratic uh, majority city. The state leadership, including Abbott, are Republican. Houston clashed with Abbott and others during the pandemic over masks and the school reopening plans there. Do you think this is a political move? Uh, there's definitely something going on because we are taking uh, the rights of uh, elected board members away. We're we're doing away with an elected school board and making an appointment. Uh, and and these people that are going to be coming into the board of managers don't even have to have an education background. So if we're working with trying to help an education system, why wouldn't we listen to educators and why wouldn't we want community input? Uh, our schools need to be poured into and not attacked. And so our governor is taking the wrong approach as usual. Uh, there is no plan that we know of. Our parents, our, our students are in spring break right now, so they have no idea what's going on, let alone our educators in HISD. Well, Avidia Molina, this, well, we will continue to follow this, and we appreciate you come back as this develops. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. CNN This Morning continues right now.
Well, the Cavaliers are playing with four guards, and the four guards out there, along with Shedrick, are their best free throw shooter. Clark in a straight jack. Oh, he didn't need to do that. He threw it away. Hing, Pagese. So good. Yikes. Good morning to Furman fans and Princeton fans who are in a really good mood today. Paladins. Not so much Arizona and uh, and Virginia there. Good morning, everyone. Poppy is off. Don and I are here. We are tracking a major announcement from China this morning, confirming that Beijing's President Xi Jinping will visit Russia as the war is raging in Ukraine. The Pentagon's press secretary is going to join us in just moments on that. And here at home, an investigation underway into the death a female soldier at Fort Hood. Her family says that she complained about sexual harassment, but the Army now says no foul play is suspected. Plus, we have CNN exclusive reporting. Dozens of Mar-a-Lago staffers have been subpoenaed in the special counsel's investigation of Trump's handling of classified documents. We'll tell you why they could be key witnesses. But we're going to begin this morning with a high-stakes meeting that could have major implications for the war in Ukraine. This morning, China has confirmed President Xi Jinping will go to Russia on Monday to meet face-to-face with President Putin. This is his first meeting, his first time in Russia since they invaded Ukraine over a year ago. Obviously a very big deal here. Uh, This all comes at the critical moment in the war. U.S. officials have been warning that China might send weapons to help Russia turn the tide. But Beijing is insisting the upcoming meeting is to urge peace. China will uphold an objective and fair position on Ukraine crisis and play a constructive role in promoting talks for peace. CNN's Will Ripley live for us in Taiwan this morning. Will, hello to you. The Kremlin says the meeting is about strategic cooperation. What else do we know? Well, look, the outcome of this meeting, a lot of analysts believe, could have a very significant effect on on where this war goes, certainly for Ukraine, because if there were to be an influx of Chinese lethal weapons, as the United States uh, suspects China is seriously considering, and it would make sense that when President Xi goes to meet with President Putin, neither neither the Kremlin nor the Beijing readout actually mention weaponry, uh, that is a discussion that Uh, they could very likely have. And if China does decide to do that in defiance of warnings from the United States and the West, it could be very bad for Ukraine, even with the the influx of weapons that have been flowing from NATO and the United States. Uh, So while, you know, China is saying this is all about urging peace and that they have an objective and impartial position, Don, if they're so impartial, you know, they put out this 12-point peace plan. They didn't call uh, Putin's war an invasion. And she has not even spoken by phone uh, with Ukraine's president, even though he's now traveling to Moscow to meet with Putin. Uh, His first overseas trip, by the way, since he got this unprecedented third term. So, uh, uh, we'll have to see what happens, uh, uh, you know, what is spoken and perhaps what is not said, uh, you know, and a lot of a lot of uh, questions this morning. Don. Let's follow up on something you said that they, they've been wanting. They said this was to urge peace. Is there any reason to believe them at this point? Well, well, you read this 12 um, point document that they issued and a lot of it is pretty boilerplate stuff. Not to mention the fact that they're using Russian propaganda terminology, call, calling it a special military operation. And they're calling for the kind of uh, um, concessions uh, that Ukraine, frankly, uh, the Ukrainian people that I spoke with when I spent, you know, the month of December there uh, is absolutely unwilling to accept, you know, slicing up their country, you know, giving some of the land that Russia took in exchange for, you know, the the intense bombardment of civilian infrastructure to stop. Uh, There's two distinct realities that exist in the world right now. There's the West 
and, uh, you know, the West sees what's happening in Ukraine through one lens. And then there's the China and Russia propaganda lens that paints it totally differently. But you have two rulers of those countries with absolute power and total control of the message inside their countries. That in itself a pretty dangerous formula, Don. Well, Whipley in Taiwan, Will, thank you very much. And joining us now to respond is the Pentagon Press Secretary, Brigadier General Patrick Ryder. Good morning, General. Thank you for being here this morning. China is saying that this meeting with Russia is about promoting peace and urging talks. Does the U.S. believe that's what's happening here? Yeah, thanks for the question, Caitlin. So, again, this is something that we're keeping a very close eye on. Uh, Interestingly, in China's so-called peace plan, one of the things that they highlight at the very top is respect for the sovereignty of all countries. Uh, We certainly would hope that they mean that. Uh, But if that means that uh, Ukraine is supposed to somehow just give up uh, and allow its territory to be subsumed by uh, Russian occupiers, uh, then that certainly is duplicitous uh, and something that I don't think Ukraine nor the rest of the world would take seriously. Does the U.S. still believe that China is considering providing weapons to Russia to use in Ukraine? Yeah, so at this point, we have not seen uh, that China has provided any type of lethal uh, assistance to Russia for use on the battlefield in Ukraine. Uh, Again, that's something that we're keeping a very close eye on. We would hope that China would not do that. We think it would be a big mistake. It would not be in their interest. And it would squarely put China in the camp of the small number of countries that have said uh, that Ukraine should be extinguished as a country. And so uh, any type of lethal assistance going from China to Russia that could be used on the battlefield would needlessly prolong this conflict and needlessly kill innocent Ukrainians. And so uh, we hope that they don't do that. uh, And we have communicated that both publicly and privately. How important does the U.S. think it is for Chinese President Xi to speak with President Zelensky before he goes to Russia? Well, again, you've heard uh, the White House and others say that we welcome a discussion between President Xi and President Zelensky. Uh, We think that it's important that China has the perspective of Ukraine. Clearly, uh, Russia's motivations uh, are nefarious. Uh, They illegally invaded and have occupied Ukraine. So we would hope that President Xi uh, and the Chinese government would be able to have the benefit of understanding what exactly the impact Uh, of their support to Russia is having. And on the downed drone, the U.S. downed drone in the Black Sea, we are now told Russia has recovered parts of the debris. What exactly does the U.S. believe that they've gotten so far? Yeah, thanks, Caitlin. So so what we know is that uh, Russia has made an effort uh, to try to recover some of the debris, uh, likely debris (laughs) that that may have been floating on the surface. Uh, But we're very confident uh, that if they were able to recover anything, and we can't corroborate those uh, those press reports, but if they were able to recover anything, uh, that it would very likely uh, have very little use. Uh, we took precautions to ensure uh, that information on that MQ-9 was protected, uh, and therefore, uh, they're, they're really not going to be able to exploit anything useful, even if they were able to get it. Oh, by the way, uh, that that drone landed in extremely deep water. Mm-hmm. So, again, very unlikely that that they're going to get anything useful from it. Does the U.S. want Russia to return any of the debris that they do recover? Look, you know, it's U.S. property. Uh, they they as you saw, they uh, they attacked the drone. They they uh, essentially harassed it, knocked it down. Uh, we controlled, crashed it into the water. Um, 
We are looking at options, assessing options in terms of recovery, again, because of where it crashed in the deep water. Uh, that's something that we're still looking at. Uh, I think the bigger issue here is a recognition of Russia's actions, which were uh, coming up on our drone, harassing it in international airspace where we were flying in accordance with international law. Uh, we have communicated to them that this type of behavior was reckless, dangerous, unsafe and unprofessional. And, and again, we call on them to ensure that their forces are operating professionally and safely. General, the White House says that Poland's decision to send these MiG-29 fighter jets to Ukraine has not changed the U.S.'s mind on sending F-16 fighter jets. Why not? Yeah, so, you know, it's important to understand, first of all, that Ukraine has an air force uh, and they know how to operate these type of aircraft. They, they operate uh, MiG fighter jets within their own air force. And so from a training and a maintenance standpoint, the ability to, to absorb these into their force and to be able to operate them in the near term is, is real. What we've been very focused on in the United States and working with our international allies and partners is on getting Ukraine the, the assistance that they need right now, that they can use right now to change the equation on the battlefield. And so you see us giving them things like air defense, armor, Bradley fighting vehicles, strikers, uh, the Germans, uh, the UK providing leopards, uh, the Germans also providing martyrs. So all of these are things that they will be able to use in, in combined arms uh, and joint warfare maneuver uh, to change the, the way that things are right now along the front line. Has the U.S. made any assurances either to Poland or Slovakia to backfill the fighter jets that they are sending to Ukraine? Uh, so these are sovereign decisions by both of those countries. Uh, and again, we are grateful to them and all the other countries that are working together with us to ensure that Ukraine has the assistance that it needs. But, you know, just this week, in fact, we had a, UK, a Ukraine defense <laughs> contact group where all of our nations talk about what it is that we need to do to support Ukraine, but also importantly, talk about how we can uh, work together as a not only a NATO alliance, but an international community to ensure that our own borders are protected. Okay, I'll note that you did not say whether or not the U.S. has made those assurances. Last question, is it accurate that the Pentagon has raised concerns with Ukrainian forces that they are burning through ammunition very quickly? Look, we are in contact with our Ukrainian counterparts on a near daily basis, uh, talking to them about how we can best support them. Ammunition uh, is, is a very critical requirement, as you know. Uh, and so at every single contact group, uh, at, in all of our discussions, we're looking not only at ammunition, but a variety of capabilities and equipment that we can give to them. Importantly, uh, also training. As you know, we're conducting training in Grafenvir. So, so we're going to continue to work around the clock to ensure that we're getting them the ammunition, the equipment, the training that they need to be successful on the battlefield. And we're confident uh, that they will continue to have what they need to be successful. Okay. Thank you for that information. Brigadier General Patrick Ryder from the Pentagon this morning. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Perfect person to have on this morning to discuss that. The U.S. Army now launching an investigation into the death of a female private this morning. The family of 21-year-old combat engineer Anna Blazuzov saying that the Army told them initially that she had committed suicide. Now, the private, who served with the 1st Cavalry Division for the past 15 months, was found dead on Monday. Let's bring in now CNN's Camilla Bernal, live in Los Angeles for us. Camilla, thank you so much for joining us. Her family made allegations of sexual harassment what can you tell us? 
Well, look, this is a very tragic case, Don. Good morning. The family demanding answers, saying they want justice, but the Army saying that investigators have found no foul play here. Look, Private Ana Fernanda Balsadua Ruiz, uh, she was reported dead on Monday, and the family just giving these very, very emotional interviews to our affiliate Univision and to Telemundo News, saying that her daughter had committed suicide, that that's what she was told by the Army. Army, but her mother is questioning that and adding that her daughter told her that she was sexually harassed at the base. She said she spoke to her daughter every single day and she detailed these allegations. Now, the Army is saying they will look into uh, possible harassment. They will look and investigate all of the details in this case. But again, most of this information is coming from her mother. Our team in Mexico went to visit her mother and asked her if uh, her daughter had expressed wanting to leave the army, to leave the base. She said, yes, here is the rest of that answer. Mami, me quiero ir contigo a México. Quiero que me abraces como, está, como cuando estaba chiquita. And again, that mother just saying her daughter wanted to be hugged the way she was hugged when she was young. I mean, this is a devastating case for this family. That mother is trying to come to the U.S. with a special visa. She is devastated and saying that she brought her daughter to the U.S. alive and she's going to bring her back to Mexico dead. Don. Camilla Bernal, thank you very much. We appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. We're moving to a major development and a CNN exclusive when it comes to the special counsel's investigation of former President Trump. Sources tell CNN that at least two dozen people who work at Mar-a-Lago have been subpoenaed in Jack Smith's investigation about Trump's handling of top secret and classified documents that were found stashed away at his Florida resort. That includes everybody from restaurant servers and a housekeeper to, of course, members of Trump's inner circle. Just yesterday, CNN cameras captured one of Trump's top communication staffers at a courthouse in Washington where she was appearing before the grand jury. Our CNN senior legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed, is here tracking all of this. I mean, it's amazing. We're, we're halfway through March just seeing the, the speed that Jack Smith is moving with this investigation. Yeah, exactly. And who's left, right? When you get down to the guy who serves the burgers at Mar-a-Lago, who else are you going to talk to? Of course, we got the answer to that yesterday when we saw one of his closest advisors, a former communications official at the White House, head into the grand jury. But what you see here is they want to talk to everybody, his attorneys, his advisors, the groundskeeper at Mar-a-Lago. And why? Well, because this is a very serious and extensive investigation into the possible mishandling of classified documents, but also questions about whether there were efforts to obstruct this investigation. So, for example, there was one young man that they saw on a security camera who was helping another advisor we know, uh, Walt Nada, another aide, move some boxes. They want to know, who told you to move them? Where did they go? So it's clear they're turning over every stone. And now, who told you to move them could be a exactly. very key question. Big, big question. Who told you to move them? When? Why? What was in them? Where did they go? A lot of questions for these folks. And you know, some people in, in the former president's world argue, like, this is ridiculous. You're talking to the guy who flips burgers, but how do we know it's ridiculous? There's no standard here. We've never had a former president who lived at a resort. Exactly. Yeah. And we never really, to my knowledge, had this issue when it comes to classified documents, right? Ending well, up apparently we did, and we just didn't we know did. about it. Exactly. Right on. <laughs> Can we talk about the special counsel, Jack Smith? He has been trying to get testimony uh, from the Trump attorney, Evan Corcoran, since the very beginning. Is he any closer to making that happen? It's possible. 
This attorney, Evan Corcoran, he has already gone before the grand jury, but he declined to answer questions about his conversations with the former president. Attorney-client privilege 101. But special counsel prosecutors, they said, no, we think that there should be an exception applied here, the crime fraud exception. We believe that his advice may have been used to perpetrate a crime. So we should be able to ask him these questions. And the judge who has been overseeing a lot of these big questions from the special counsel investigation and that grand jury, she leaves the bench at about five o'clock today. She ages onto a different role in the system. So she has until five o'clock today to make this ruling. Caitlin and I, we will be on our wow. phones, up the grills of every Trump attorney trying to figure out when this decision comes down. Because it's not public either. It's under seal. I'm thinking it's, she's handing this all over to another chief judge who's walking into this and this is all going to be on his plate now. Yes, good luck to him. And it's really interesting because, as you know, some of the people in Trump world uh, believe that this judge, Judge Howell, that she's been too favorable to the special counsel. And there's is going to be a new sheriff in town. But if you read, if you read actually his jurisprudence, his opinions, I'm not sure how that's actually going to play out. So it's going to be fascinating to watch. Right. Well, I'll read. Thank you. And we'll be watching for those alerts to see the reporting. We're on it. Has. We're well, on it. Thank you very much. <laughs> a decision to access medication, abortion could come down. Uh, medication, abortion, abortion medication, I should say, should come down as soon as today. If the pill is no longer federally approved for use, what will it do? How will state leaders handle that? We're going to ask the Democratic Governor Tim Waltz of Minnesota. That's next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A federal judge in Texas could decide as soon as today whether to block access to a key abortion pill nationwide. Trump appointed Judge Matthew Kaczmarek heard about four hours of arguments, this was on Wednesday, and suggested that he is seriously considering undoing federal approval of that drug. What's at stake here? Access could be cut off nationwide to the most common method of abortion in the United States, even as states where medication abortion is legal. Vice President Kamala Harris warning of the potential consequences. On the fundamental issue at play with that court case is our public health system as a whole. If politicians can start using the court to undo doctors' decisions, imagine where that could lead. Well, this comes as Walgreens earlier this month said it will not dispense mifeprestone in the 21 states, including a handful where abortion remains legal, following a February letter from GOP attorneys general in those states. In response, this week, a group of 14 governors issued a letter to major pharmacies writing, we urge that your decisions continue to be guided by well-established science and medical evidence, not politics or litigation threats. So joining us now to discuss one of the signers of that letter, and that's Democratic Governor Tim Walz of Minnesota. Governor, we're so happy that you could join us this morning. Thank you very much. Uh, here's what you say. You say pharmacies must put health and safety of the people before politics. So how are you how much are you concerned about this? Well, very concerning. Good morning, Don. I think Vice President Harris summed it up right. Imagine this, someone with no medical training arbitrarily making a decision about a drug that is legal is prescribed by a licensed physician to an individual in their private consultation of what's best for their health. This is not surprising. The extremist attacks on reproductive rights and access to abortion is, of course, you know, 
accelerated since the Dobbs decision. But I think what this letter is stating is being very clear amongst the states that understand that that this is going to be uh, an issue that will continue on further beyond mefeprestone. But uh, we want to make it very clear that that they need to dispense these as according to law. So uh, it's a big deal. I think Vice President Harris is not overstating where this is at. We see it. And I'm in a an, an area where the states around me have made abortion illegal or criminal. And um, what that's done is just increased access, because we know this does nothing um, to improve women's access to, uh, to reproductive health care. It forces them to make really horrific decisions. So we're watching this very closely. We're making clear that, you know, 21 extremist uh, attorney generals do not dictate health care in Minnesota or other states. Governor, can I ask you a question? Because in January, you signed a pretty broad abortion rights bill into law, and Republicans in your state were very critical of it. They said, uh, the chairman of the Republican Party said that you lied to voters. That's what they accused you of. They said, make no mistake, this extreme bill provides for taxpayer-funded abortion on demand up until and even after birth. Can you respond to them? Well, these are people that uh, want to make it, as you see, a, a death penalty in South Carolina and others, and Republicans in Minnesota would do the same thing. Look, what I've done is is, is precedence of law of, of, of Roe, making sure that we trust women to make their health care decisions. We trust physicians as they deal with uh, these very complicated and very personal decisions. We've simply codified it into law to make sure that that has been the law of the land. So again, you hear these extremist uh, screams from the, from the right. These these are the folks that that simply want to uh, criminalize women. They they want to to make it impossible to access care. We're seeing it in Utah, and I think what you're seeing is is states that trust women, trust science, are standing up and saying not on our watch. And that's what this letter was about. That's what the codification here in Minnesota was about. Overwhelmingly, Minnesotans voted in November, and I was very clear with them. I trust women, and I will protect access to reproductive and abortion care. There's nothing uh, unclear about that statement. They simply will not respect that the voters overwhelmingly rejected their position and support women. And we're just making sure we follow through with what that, what that election said. Governor, I want to follow up on your first answer because you uh, mentioned these attorneys general and um, the Republican attorneys generals have threatened legal action uh, against these pharmacies. Isn't there a significant risk for these nationwide pharmacies here? Yeah, there's a significant risk, and we need to stand with them. Um, I think, again, I'm, I, I'm, they made a decision to not do this. You saw it. Um, one of our colleagues in California, Governor Newsom, made the call on, on Walgreens. We're not threatening these pharmacies. We're backing them up on their freedoms issue. This Again, I would go back to this statement. Imagine whatever drug you are having dispensed for you or your family, for whatever reason it is, that someone in one of these states decides to get together and says, we don't want that drug to be dispensed because we have religious or ideological opposition to that and you can't get it. These are drugs that are life-saving for women that have pregnancies and complications. Um, this, this outrageous idea that women are using these things as birth control uh, on the final weeks is ludicrous. And so, yes, I am deeply concerned about this. It is, it is unconscionable that you're seeing these folks make this type of decision and using the federal courts, not any science, not any precedence, judge shopping to find this and then banding together. Um, again, it is outrageous. And I just want to be very clear. The, the women in these states are traveling to states like Minnesota and others to get life-saving care. That is all they're doing. States like Minnesota, we, 
we're there to, to make sure that we're protecting folks. And a lot of the things we're doing here in codification of laws and things that we're doing is we're not cooperating with these states. We're not cooperating with what they're doing. And we want to make it clear to these pharmacies, they don't need to cooperate either. This is, this is an extremist position, totally out of any precedence, and it's putting people at risk. Governor, I want to move on and talk about gender-affirming care, because last week you took executive action to protect access to gender-affirming care in Minnesota. Republican state lawmakers across the country have escalated their fight against this type of care, including this week in Georgia. I want to know your reaction. And listen, you're a former um, high school teacher. How does that inform your approach to these issues that concern minors? Yeah, I know that every child brings their authentic self into my classroom. For 20 years, I did this. And what we know is, is that students who are understanding are, are trying to understand who they are as their, their gender identity is being developed. Um, they are most at risk. They're most at risk for bullying. They're most at risk for suicide. And what we want to say is we're there to protect children. We're there to have you understand that in Minnesota you're going to be protected. And I just want to be clear. I will never understand what goes into the thinking of these folks to bully these children. It is not impacting them in one bit and making it um, a living hell for children, for families, for adults, for folks who are just trying to bring themselves in. Uh, so in Minnesota, we're making it very clear we're not going to cooperate with these folks. We're not going to extradite people. We're going to say that this is a place where you can come to make these decisions. I am. Um, this is um, these the community, the trans community is 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 terrified as they've ever been. We've seen attacks across the nation, even here in Minnesota. And, and we're, we're now saying we have to be much more proactive. We have to be much more aggressive about making sure that folks are protected. So um, this is another of the fronts that, again, you know, don't deal with climate change. Um, don't deal with other things. Deal with making people's lives miserable on something that won't impact you. That's what these governors are doing, these attorney generals are doing. And, and I've had it I, as a teacher. I will not stand bullies. I never did. And I'm not going to stand bullies who are masquerading as somehow about freedom. This has nothing to do with personal freedoms. It has everything to do with forcing an ideology on a vulnerable group of people for short-term political gain. It will, won't stand. And in the long runs, Americans are far better than that. And, and they're going to find that out. Yeah. Well, Governor Tim Waltz of Minnesota, we appreciate you joining us this morning. Your fellow Minnesota and Poppy Harlow is off today and she sends her regards. Thank you for joining. Thank you both. Thank you. Quite a forceful answer there. Yeah. 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 All right. Also this morning, there is a new memo where House Oversight Republicans claim that President Biden's family members have received more than a million dollars indirectly from a Chinese company. These Republicans, we should note, have not provided evidence tying the payments directly to anyone yet. The White House and a spokesperson for Hunter Biden's legal team have dismissed the new memo. CNN's Melanie Zanona is joining us live from Capitol Hill. Melanie, what did we learn from this memo exactly? What are Republicans laying out here? Well, Caitlin, we already knew that members of Biden's family had received money from a Chinese-based energy company, but the House Oversight Committee is now providing new details about those payments, including that one of the recipients was Hallie Biden. She is the widow of Beau Biden. She was also romantically involved with Hunter Biden after Beau's death. And the House Oversight Committee was able to glean this information by obtaining financial records from an associate of Hunter Biden. His name is John Robinson Walker. He's someone that Republicans have scrutinized for many years. He transferred just over a million dollars to three members of Biden's family after he received $3 million 
from that Chinese-based energy company. But I want to be crystal clear here because this memo does not directly tie these payments to President Joe Biden in any way, nor does it provide any evidence that Biden directed these payments or took any action during his time in office to enrich his own family members. Hunter Biden's legal team also says that Hunter pursued these legitimate business deals, that he has a right to do so as a private citizen, that all the money was earned legitimately. And so I think it's important to underscore here, Republicans, they are continuing to dig on this issue. They are ramping up this investigation, but they have not yet proved the entire purpose of their investigation. Caitlin. Melanie Zanona, live on Capitol Hill. Thank you. All right, and we have a look at stock futures this morning. Markets are set to open in just about an hour from now. We're keeping an eye on that very closely as we are seeing regional banks get help from bigger banks in an unprecedented move. We're going to discuss it all with Christine Romans next. So this just in CNN, a new crackdown on those annoying spam text messages that you get from unknown numbers. The Federal Communications Commission adopted new rules requiring telecom companies to block text messages from phone numbers that appear to be invalid, allocated or unused. The agency HAD received more than uh, 18,000 consumer complaints and it, it mirrors a um, similar effort to shut down illegal robocalls. I'm definitely down. Fully endorsed. With that. <laughs> All right. Also right now, U.S. stock futures are mixed as the, we await for the market to open just moments from now. Wall Street, however, still headed for a winning week after a group of America's biggest banks announced that they will come to the rescue with a $30 billion package for First Republic Bank. CNN's Christine Romans joins us now with the major news on Silicon Valley Bank's parent company. What are we learning? Okay, so this just crossed uh, the parent company of Silicon Valley Bank, the bank that failed and started this whole mess uh, or highlighted this whole mess, has just filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in New York. It's got $2.2 billion of liquidity. Uh, so now we've got the next step in this process there. So that we expected this, but the, that filing just happened here. And then the other big news is this unbelievable private sector push to shore up First Republic. We learned uh, yesterday afternoon that banks led by J.P. Morgan Chase and Citigroup, uh, Wells Fargo and others were all kicking in billions of dollars of their own money to cover the deposits of First Republic. So this was another big effort in the last week to really project confidence and reassurance in the American financial system. This is essentially a bank-led bailout of one of their competitors because the idea here is- But it is, helps them. It helps them because financial security is good for their business. Financial security is, of course, goodwill for the American economy. So that's what we're seeing there. And you can see all that money flowing into there. Uh, futures are a little bit lower here right now. We're that's on track for an up week, but I'm going to very closely be watching the regional bank stocks to see if they can get uh, find some footing here. That's the thing, because, yeah, these big banks are coming up with $30 billion. What about the rest of the other banks, though, the other small and mid-sized banks that are Yeah, struggling? you know, some of them are struggling, but they're going to be okay. Uh, others we're watching very closely. When I talk to banking experts... Uh, and policymakers, they say the U.S. banking system is strong and it is sound, but we could have more bank bankruptcies. Both of those things could mm -hmm. happen in the same environment. And that's that's just where we are after a year of, of much higher interest see rates. Some of the smaller and some of the regional banks, their, their stocks are going up. So it's Yeah, you know, they're trying to, I'm just searching for stability is what I keep saying, like yeah. putting a floor under this thing. You know, the fire is out, but the embers are still, so, are smoldering. still smoldering. Yeah. So we all have to be on guard. Yeah, thank just you, an Christine. amazing effort. Christine, yeah, Ryan, is. thank you it for is. being with us all week here at the <laughs> desk. 
Um, also, while you were sleeping, in oh addition boy. to if you're not paying attention to the banking crisis, Taylor Swift was releasing. We have her new and newish music. That's next. All of the girls you loved before made you the one. That is Taylor Swift's newly released track, All the Girls You Loved Before. It is part of a surprise drop that happened overnight and had her fans waiting for the clock to strike midnight. She went public with four previously unreleased songs, including a few gems from the past, which are branded as Taylor's version, as the ones she releases are now. The release is coinciding with her highly anticipated Eras tour. It is her first tour in five years. It's kicking off in Arizona tonight, months after that Ticketmaster fiasco that left millions of her fans empty-handed. It actually prompted a congressional investigation, or congressional hearing, I should say, on the lack of competition in the ticketing industry. So here with us to dis discuss now is Julie Slavin, also known as DJ Hestaprin, which Hi. is the preferred name, right? That's my preferred name, yes. <laughs> DJ Hestaprin. What's up? <laughs> I mean, it has to be remarkable for, from your vantage point to just view how insane the demand for this has been, yes. how Taylor Swift has just like, she kind of rebrands herself in a different, varying way each time she goes on tour. It's amazing to watch. I agree. You know, I looked at the new songs this morning. I listened on YouTube and they had 51 million views from at, midnight at 6 a.m. Wow. this morning I haven't even looked in two hours wow and what's actually amazing about Taylor with all the Taylor's version if you're following it with the masters is yeah. that she's really become like a lead a legal um, activist and when you think of a pop star especially a pop star who appeals to such like a young age group you don't think about the kids learning about um, intellectual property rights and business. how to... Yeah, you don't think of business. them learning about business. That's how so many artists get tripped up on that, right? And they lose all of their money, but not Taylor. She owns her masters now, right? She, she does. To, to yeah. get her masters back. She kind of... I know you're a fan of Early Prince. Am I getting that right? I'm a fan Ooh. of, yes. I love all genres of music. I, yeah. I like Taylor Swift. I'm just not as... I, as um, what's the word? Knowledgeable about her music, and what she's yeah. like as Caitlyn. Caitlyn's like really into it. Caitlyn's going to see her uh, on Friday in Las Vegas. But Ooh. just a simple question: You have favorites when you're looking at the music? Did you like? Yeah, I mean, I love this new record more than anything. I'm not a Swifty. Like full disclosure, it sounds like maybe you're more of a Swifty than me. I think I'd, I'd cross that threshold the most out of anyone at the table. <laughs> right. I like that. But I use because I'm a DJ. I use music, and what yeah. I love about Taylor is you can really like jump off from Taylor into any genre. If you're mixing a set you can go from we are never ever getting back together to like on to the next one yeah jay-z and you know yeah. and then you can go into like started from the bottom by drake who i think your guys are also a fan of i heard you talking about drake this morning yeah yeah a lot of music well, talking about Come on, I mean, please, I'm always talking about Drake. But her influence really is amazing because even if you're not this diehard fan, I mean, it's hard to deny the impact she has. Look at what happened with the ticket sales. She's yep. kicking off in, in Glendale, Arizona tonight. I love this proclamation that we got from the city's uh, mayor. They're naming it Swift City tonight for her for her kickoff. That's and crazy. I just think it is amazing the influence she's had. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It's not just teenage girls as well, right? Not anymore. I mean, the thing with Taylor is, like, people grew up with her, and she's changed so much. I think when, I, when you think about, you know, I talk on my radio show, it's music is therapy. We talk about the emotional connection to artists. And I think Taylor has everything because she talks in her lyrics. She's so candid. We know what she's singing about. And there's something about her vocal tone that everyone kind of connects with. I, have a three, I had a three-year-old. She's now nine. But I remember I played her Taylor Swift early on, and half way through the song, she turned to me, not knowing anything about Taylor's story or all of those things, and she said, Mommy, this is my favorite singer. That really happens. Wow. There's something about her Three vocal tone 
that really like takes people and grabs them and brings them in. Yeah. So because of that, because people feel close to her and like they know her, when she says, I want you to stream Taylor's version, because that means that I get paid because I own this, because yeah. artists should own their work. People follow that. They do what she says because they feel so connected to her. Well, that's the thing about artists and artistry. It's, it's the unknown. As they say, someone has a je ne sais quoi. That's right. She has that. She has that's it. That's the only word I know. Yeah. Safe to say. I like Thank that. you for joining us on set here. Thanks for having me. Have a great time at that show. Thanks, I will. Yeah. DJ. <laughs> good to see you. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. This is... Not Taylor Swift, but also still craziness that's been happening. The first round of March Madness was pretty dramatic, right? And probably busted your bracket. Harry Enton has this morning's number. Come on, bust a move there, Harry. are playing with four guards and the four guards out there along with Shedrick are their best free throw shooters. Clark in a straight check. Oh, he didn't need to do that. He threw it away. Heen, Pagese, Furman University, stunning Virginia with just two seconds left on the clock. That game-winning shot was the first major upset of March Madness. First round games continue today and turns out your choice of cable or streaming could be setting you up for a major spoiler. CNN senior data reporter Harry Enton has this morning's number. That applies to me, especially with uh, the streaming service that I have on my phone. When I'm watching from the phone, I notice everybody's like 40 seconds ahead of me. Yeah, it's a thing and something that I've run into a lot, so I got really interested in this. So this morning's number is 25%, because that's the percentage of NCAA fans who streamed at least one game over the last year. So streaming is becoming a lot more popular. And you know, you're talking about streaming and someone like me who might be watching on cable and talking about that lag, that lag, right? And it turns out there's a massive lag. So how much lag behind real-time action? This is an estimate using this past year's Super Bowl as an example. So cable lags behind real-time action by about 28 seconds. But look at the average streamer, a bundle, let's say your FUBUs, let's say your Hulus, let's say your uh, YouTube TV. That lags by an average of about 67 seconds. And so streaming lag cable by about 39 seconds overall. And I wanna give you an idea of how this works in real time with a good example up here. So we literally have cable, right? And then we start at the clock for 39 seconds and you'll look at streaming TV, nothing is going on at this particular point. And why is this so important? Because maybe you wanna be texting with friends, Don. Maybe you're on Twitter, right? And you're following the action. Or maybe you have a sports app and it's updating you. And of course they get the action in real time and you're watching, let's say YouTube TV, and all of a sudden the action is happening and you have no idea what's going on. And I for one can't stand this, especially when I'm watching an NFL game and I can't watch my Buffalo Bills streaming. I have to make sure that in fact I'm getting in real time. And look now, we just hit zero and the streaming just started. That's how much of a delay that we're talking about here. And so when you're, let's say, texting with your friends on the NCA buzzer beaters, all of a sudden, you might not necessarily know what's going on. So let's just sort of walk back here a little bit. And, you know, again, as I mentioned, it's your friends texting, it's Twitter, it's your sports app. All that lagging really hurts. But you know what? Americans really hate spoilers, and it's not just about sports streaming, right? Twitter can spoil stream shows, let's say Succession, right, for example. And here's where I love that we have polling for everything. About 75% of Americans hate spoilers of any type. If they ruin um, 
succession for me, I'll just be really angry, Don. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing to see how far behind it was. It's a great argument for cable, by I the way. I live that. I live that. That's- I'm glad you said that. I was going to say, just get cable. You're going to get the notification from CBS Sports before you even find out what happened to the the game. Yeah. Awful. I can't stand it. It annoys the heck out of me. Cable. All of this. And you spend more money, I find, on all of these services than just cable. I mean, so much to figure it out. It's called cable. Yeah. Mm. We got a lot of games to watch today. Yeah. We'll be right back. Nearly 30 years after a civil war in Guatemala, the country is still struggling The father of this morning's CNN hero was killed during the conflict, but she has turned that pain into purpose. Los niños llegaban a la biblioteca a buscar cómo hacer las tareas porque en casa no tenían los recursos. Los papás no saben leer. Hi, my name is... Empezaron a llegar con este deseo de superación. Luego empecé a darme cuenta que habían más obstáculos que les impiden a ellos estudiar. Proveemos de oportunidades de educación y de las herramientas para que ellos eh, puedan romper con el círculo de la pobreza. Ya tenemos niños que dicen que quieren ser ingenieros o que quieren ser químicos. ¡Fuera! Somos cientos de personas involucradas. Le damos a las personas amor respeto y dignidad. And for more, you can, yeah, so good. You can go to cnnheroes.com. You can nominate your hero there. Our hero, you guys for watching this week. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Have a great weekend. Happy St. Patrick's Day. CNN Newsroom starts right now. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.